We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast presented to you by BetUS. This is episode one of the Billy Napier era. Alan, huh. it's time. It we're happened. here. It happened. It happened so fast. We've been covering this every single week. We've got a lot to break down on this show. We're going to talk a little bit about Florida, Florida State, kind of like we have been each of the the past few weeks, just giving you what you need to know and then getting into the meat of all of the coaching changes and what's been going on with Scott Strickland and the athletic department and all of that good stuff, which we will jump into. But again, this is episode one. What I want to start with, Alan, is I drove by the stadium last night, Sunday night, and I looked at it and I had this... For the first time in a long time, I had like a swelling of like fulfilled pride and hope. And we're going to chronicle kind of the journey and we're not going to give it away, but I felt that way and it was real. Yeah. And I texted our group thread and I was like, I'm just so stoked right now to be like a Gators football fan. Again. Yeah, you like don't say that type of stuff. I don't often. say it very often. And we're going to we're going to dive into why I feel this way. Uh, but but it's nice. So I'm sitting here feeling great. That's all that to say. I feel great. I'm, I'm super excited about this podcast. I have like renewed hope and energy, positivity. Uh, how are you feeling over there? Great as well. I think this process went as well as you could hope for a coaching search. You know, you can think of Tennessee a couple years ago, maybe what LSU is experiencing right now. It can go south on you a lot of ways, and this one did not for the Gators. And we beat the hated criminals. So I think that will always bring a smile to my face. So shout out to the Gator staff and players for providing that on Saturday. But yeah, it's a good moment to be a Florida Gator. A lot of optimism about the future, at least in our little corner of the world. You know, maybe not everybody's feeling that way. We'll get to some of those questions as well. But yeah, it's a good moment for us. I think a good moment for Gator Nation, whether people understand it at this moment or not. Yeah, we hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Obviously, it was, it was great for the Florida Gators, as Alan just mentioned, a sniper shot, picking up a coach, a win over Florida State. And... Here you go, your post-Thanksgiving entering into the Christmas season podcast. So as always, if you like this content, follow us on social media, sub to the YouTube channel, where I've been faithfully doing film reviews all the way until the end of the year. 
And next week, I will be bringing you a film review on Louisiana's game versus App State. And I'll kind of take a look at Billy Napier's offense, defense, kind of what their team looks like in general. So you'll want to catch that one as well this week. The Florida-Florida State game is out there for you to view. Uh, as always, you can drop us a dono on Patreon. That's not changed. It's it's now soon to be December. Depending on when you listen to this, it could be December. But you can support our show by joining our patron family on Patreon. Links are always anywhere we post. And in doing so, you can join again this illustrious set of names, 300 of you plus strong, that we have read out each and every year and will continue to do so. But before I do that, the weekly shout out to B-Red and Bama Shane for taking such good care of Alan and I on this podcast with their editing and their faithful volunteer service to the show on both the YouTube channel and this pod. So thanks to both of you gentlemen. You are the best. All right, just a couple of level ups this week in the dono world. We got Patrick Moore, who's just a shade under an XL dono. He's been leveling up all year long when Florida wins. Thanks, Patrick, for your season of faithfulness. And then an XL dono, a level up from Kristen Moody, heading out of the large to XL world. So moving up here at the end of 2021 and still sitting on the throne is the big homie. We got a chance to spend some time with him on Friday uh, and great times with the big homie, Alan and I. You and I had a blast. Really a lot of fun. He is still on the throne and now overseeing, as we thought he might, he has overseen the transition the coup, to really. Billy Napier. So he did it. He's in. It happened. And uh, behind him, he has he has a courtroom here or a, you know, whatever, a throne room, rather. <laughs> Sorry, not courtroom, although you could call it a court, but a throne room of Dono legends to go with him. Let's do it. Lil Payton, Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stosh Me, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Honderick, James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Rummery, and Craig Scarado. There you go. Thanks to each and every one of you. The Gators win. They win 24-21 in the game that was close. Then it wasn't close, and it got real close at the end again. You and I both picked almost this exact score, 24-20, but with FSU winning. Man, what a incredibly long and strange game that was. It was the longest game in the history of college football. I don't know if you knew that. It felt like it, so it does not surprise me. I was texting our group thread with like all caps towards the end. Yeah. I'm like, college football is broken. Like they yeah. have to fix these situations. Oh, what man. is going on? <laughs> so not the longest game ever, but it certainly felt like it at times when every play was reviewed and there was an infinite number of penalties. But going quickly to the keys of the game here, this is funny because not a lot of these happened. Uh, I wanted to see four plus yards per carry. Only got three. You wanted to see 200-plus yards rushing, only 139. And for the defense to hold FSU under 300, they did not. FSU had 348. So it seemed like if just looking at those, Florida would have lost. But I want to see three turnovers. We got those. That was helpful. And Florida really actually started to control this game in the second half. When, amazingly, they played the right quarterback Oh, man, I would just go on such a tirade if this mattered in the future. But Anthony Richardson enters the game in the second half, and the complexion of the game changes. Despite the limitations of some of the coaches maybe that were surrounding him, the Gators pull it out. 
So let me just start here with how much did you enjoy this win? Let me go first. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. You know, it's something so satisfying about this. And maybe it's because we're from a particular age group. Maybe it's because I'm from Jacksonville and there's a split FSU fan base. But, man, I love beating those guys. There was uh, there was some FSU fan, an obnoxious fan near us, shouting about, you don't even have a coach. I was like, yeah, we and we're beating you. What does it say about your coach? So... You know, it didn't mean much in the big scheme of things, but for two kind of incompetent teams battling it out, I enjoyed it. How about you? Yeah, it felt like I was, I've done a fair amount of hiking in my life, despite sort of being a self-proclaimed, I hate hiking. (laughs) And I've done like 25 miles in a day. I've done all these epic, like difficult hikes to cool places. And it keeps happening to me. (laughs) But some of those hikes along the way, I really enjoy them. Like the whole thing which is surprising because I really don't like hiking. But other of the ones, I really don't like it at all. And you get to the end and you think, okay, this is this is satisfying. This is this is a payoff. That's how this game was for me. The game itself, forgettable. Nobody wants to remember what happened in that game. There were very few plays that were even noteworthy or exciting. There was a, a major one, of course. But all in all, it was, it was really a, a, a game of two teams playing each other that are bad, that are not playing good football, that are not organized. And yet... Yet, at the end of the hike, at the end of the game, I'm going home and I'm like, yes, that's right. Yes, I'm looking at the Florida State fans and I'm thrilled because what you said is true. I don't have to worry that anything that happened today is going to matter for the future. And as far as the dark timeline went, Alan, it was the best possible scenario. Like coming into this game, we talked about it. I aired my grievances at the end of our last episode when I went on my one-minute rant of how Emory Jones is starting and Knox is going to be a loyalist to Mullen, which he was, so much so it took three interceptions from Emory Jones and then finally hitting an FSU player in the back of the head with a severely underthrown pass to get him out of the game. But it happened. It did happen, which I think says a lot about how loyal Knox was to Mullen. He didn't want to do anything to make Mullen look bad. And in spite of themselves, the coaching staff gets a win. But for us, for fans, we get a win. Richardson finishes the game. He's elated. He's happy. He's leading the team over there to sing the alma mater. He's got a smile on his face. It was good. Pierce gets finally double-digit carries, and he gets fed on an entire drive, something we've begged for, begged for. Colossal wasted opportunities. But none of it matters because we don't have to worry, at least right now, Alan, that next year is going to be the same thing. I don't have to worry that Emory Jones is going to be the quarterback because he's not. There's a 0% chance, I'm telling you right now, zero, that he's going to be the guy that's Florida's quarterback next year. He's probably going to transfer. And even if he is here, Napier's not going to choose him. It's an impossibility. I don't have to worry about it anymore because the only way Emory Jones played on this team was loyalty and seniority. And that's not a slight to Emory Jones, as we've said all along, because he tried his best. He's seemingly a super nice guy and a good teammate. So I loved it. I'm I'm basking in it. We beat them. They dodged one last year. Now, if you're Florida State, you got Mike Norvell, and you're thinking, where are we going? What are we doing? The record's worse than Willie Taggart's. They had a nice upswing at the end, but they couldn't beat a Florida team that was basically playing to lose for half this game. They still couldn't win. We were trying to hand it to them. So how bad does Florida State look in light of that? So all in all, yeah, I'm enjoying the finish a lot. Yeah, and B-Red has a note here. 
you know, turning the page on a rough few months feels good to credit. Feels good to give credit to the players and fans for making Saturday great despite the circumstances. And I want to say, yeah, the coaching staff still had to get them prepared as much as possible, right? And the players had to buy in and and go for it. I mean, this is like a lame duck. It's not even a lame duck situation. It's a interim short term situation. But they competed. They wanted to win. They played fairly well for the most part. And they got to win. And you had the coaches just made one simple change of starting Anthony Richardson. This game, I think, is a blowout, an absolute blowout. And that would have been nice. But the win is really nice, too. So, yeah, I think it's going to have gone south, and it didn't. So I think the players deserve a lot of credit for that. Yeah, I mean, you want, again, coaches are supposed to put players in positions to win. It's been one of the frustrating things that we have chronicled in the Dan Mullen era is oftentimes that's not the case. But two, it's a game of football. You're playing in the swamp. It's an absolutely gorgeous day. If you can't go out there and represent your school against your rival, against kids you probably knew or grew up with or heard of, then you just don't really love the game of football. And sadly, Alan, there's a lot of kids, a lot of grown men that play football and don't love it. They do it for other reasons. So it was nice, although the game was meaningless in the standpoint of um, you know, like it's not going to be something we look back on and think, man, I'm, I'm so happy that we won this game. It meant we won a title, but you do get bowl eligible. You do represent your school. Well, you do win at home when your fans are there and you do give everyone a nice send off. It's a nice end cap. And again, hats off really to the team for getting it done. They didn't quit despite the fact that things were ugly. They weren't turning on each other, Alan, which I thought was good. Despite all the turmoil that's gone on this year, the players didn't seem to turn on each other. They did seem to turn on their coaches, but they weren't turning on each other, which I think is is good. And it, it ended obviously that way. So yeah, I, I think it I think it'd be hard to find a Gator fan or Gators fan rather who wasn't happy at the end of the game with the result. I don't think anybody's gonna be thrilled with the game itself, but all the narratives that came out of it, the way it finished, the way it ends, the way it pushes us now into the new era, it was it was what we needed. It was therapy. Right. And I think we said before, I don't remember what this conversation was, but losing to Missouri, it's like, whatever. I don't want to lose to them, but in a, certainly in a meaningful season, I do not want to lose to them. But that, that doesn't stick with you. You don't have Missouri fans talking trash to you, right? But to lose that FSU game, it matters. This is the beauty of college football. That, that matters in any circumstance, any year. There's higher or lower stakes, but it always matters. So briefly, we'll talk about the game here. The offense, 357 yards of offense. 139 yards rushing, 218 passing. Like we said, 3.0 yards per rush. Did have three interceptions. 11 of 13 on third down and one of one on fourth down. 11 of 19. 11 on 13 would have been great. 11 on 19 is still far above Florida's average on third down conversions, which largely led to to Florida's success. So let me just jump down to the discussion here. Um, So the offense in general, you had Garrett. McGee calling plays. Of course, first half Emory, second half AR. Just thoughts on the offense overall briefly. I mean, this doesn't matter going forward, but any real differences there? It was very vanilla for yeah, both. For sure. Very, I mean, we were running the same formations almost exclusively. They only really probably ran five different formations with Richardson in the game at all. They ran the bunch set a lot. They'd run trips occasionally, but it was very, very basic. So I think they had just went to a stripped down version of of you know Dan Mullen's offense keep the nuts and bolts in keep it easy and then they obviously played you know a guy like Emery who I think was going to do what he was going to do and especially because he didn't have Dan consistently protecting him 
which we talked about. So although the game plan was really simple, Emery was frequently put in situations where he didn't have a wide open tight end to throw the ball to right away. He didn't have a wide open hitch route because we were running hitch routes, but they weren't as disguised. And so or in the right Florida State was moments, sitting on yeah. them, correct? So we said this all along. Emery was really being maximized by Dan Mullen, which was, in, uh, which was attributable to Dan Mullen's success as an OC, but also attributable to his tremendous lack of vision as a personnel manager to not play the better player. And then, of course, you know, the ball bounces off of the Florida State player's helmet. And I, I'm just sitting in my seat thinking, I'm, I'm very zen. Like, I'm not, I'm not yelling. I don't care. I just want to win. And in your head, you're thinking, this is really remarkable that it's taken this much. And at that point in time, I was like, I'm just not going to see Richardson. I mean, what could, what could possibly happen to right. bench him? And then in comes Richardson. And you're like, oh, maybe he's going to stay in the game. But even then, like, he converts a third down, which is a great. He comes in totally cold. Big moment of the game at 7-7. Seven to seven. It's third and eight. He comes in and calmly eyes downfield, moves out of the pocket, hits Copeland on a dig route, first down conversion. Florida winds up getting a field goal despite penalties and a bunch of other stuff. And then it's like, okay, is he going to come back out? He does. Then he stays in. You know, things were things were what you wanted them to be. So offensively, of course, the simple highlight diagnosis is we still had false start issues with the clap snap, which yeah. is just crazy, Alan. It was a small crowd. It was quiet in there. It was not noisy. Our offensive line struggled just so mightily. Braun has regressed, if that's possible. It's really weird for a guy who looked good on the right side of the line to be really dismal on the left side. And it's just all I can say about him. He's just not good. Delance was horrific. It was a sad end. We've I have ridden Delance extremely hard. The coaching side of me has. And it was really a fitting end, which was not what I would have wanted for him. But he was horrible. I mean, beaten pass protection, beat on the run. He's just not a good lineman. He's out of there. And then somebody always missed a block on virtually every play yeah. the entire day. Whether it was going to be Zipper, or it was going to be Gamble, it was going to be Garage. I mean, somebody always missed a block entirely, which really derailed Florida's offense. And it was largely because when Richardson is in the game, Alan, something we chronicled so long was his pocket presence and quarterback technique and his eyes downfield is such a bonus. And since Florida State was actually doing something that was questionable, to say the least, they were playing a lot of like heavy pass defenses, which allowed Richardson to escape the pocket and keep his eyes downfield and make plays. The smarter teams, Missouri, South Carolina, etc., were not allowing Richardson to ever have an escape valve if he was even in the game for a second. Florida State was content to do that, and I thought Richardson made them pay. So I think that was probably the major difference in the game is they wanted to play uh, more heavy in the back end, and Richardson's pocket presence led led to them, you know, paying for that. And well, we couldn't run the ball at all. Couldn't so. do it. Couldn't do it. And they were they were able to do that just by bringing a safety down late. They were sort of yeah. playing, you know, they weren't overloading the run like other teams have, but they were stopping us anyway, uh, which made sense. They thought, okay, we'll be able to handle this, but they couldn't. And again, that's that's largely attributable to what Richardson did because they were obviously handling Emory. Emory was driving the ball occasionally. Mm-hmm. Right. But three picks means you're handling someone. It's working. Your game plan's working. And they just did not have the right game plan for well, Richardson. Eventually, they knew that he was going to get in a situation where he's going to have to throw the ball downfield. Correct. And they were going to do it. And they advantage. sat on his tendency throws. We had, we had sat on the film review for a long time. It, it amazes me that teams aren't just dropping guys into his hitch routes. Well, Florida State was doing that all the time. And they got rewarded handsomely for that. So good job by them there. And then at the end, I thought it was a tale of two games, right? Richardson comes in. And he, he scores three of his first four drives. They they score. Field goal, touchdown, touchdown, punt. And then 
the last three or four drives of the game, there's essentially eight plays to end the game. Seven wound up being a run. There was one additional pass call, but it was like a home run or a run play. Um, that was that. And the drive before that, two of three were runs. And they also had a third and short and didn't get it and punted. So two drives ended Super with a fourth and one. It was unbelievably conservative. They went up 24-7 and thought, this is a Will Muschamp, and it was, a Will Muschamp game plan, which is a curious ending. Again, uh, we talked about this a lot. I've talked about this a lot. I will continue to say it, despite what some people on the internet or other people want to say. Uh, not all turnovers are created equally. And the fact that there's some people out there that want to kind of talk about Anthony Richardson's turnover rate as though he's some sort of turnover machine if you look at those turnovers like I have, that's just not what he does. He's an intelligent quarterback. He's going to make mistakes. He's a young kid. But he's not a guy that you can't trust to do the right thing most of the time, especially if he knows he's the guy, which is what he did against LSU, etc. So I thought he handled himself extremely well. He was kind to Emery. You know, when Emery comes out, there's that moment, throws the bad pick. The first person out there is Richardson. You know, hey, man, taps on the helmet. And then comes in the game and handles his business really well. And ultimately, him and Pierce, two guys we were begging for to get the lion's share of the work, took over the game because they were the best players in the field, and they won the game. Yep. And that's that's what happened. That's the highlight is those two guys, they won the game for Florida. You know, 15 and 27, that was it. They were the best players in the field. Football can be that simple. And despite the really conservative coaching that was pretty much succeeding in spite of themselves, that was enough to get a W. Yeah, I kind of lost it a little bit. I think I said something along the lines of I hate our coaches really loudly when, when Richardson came in the game, because I was kind of under the impression that he was hurt. Cause right. He came in for one play limped off. They didn't put him back in. I was like, maybe he did something, but when you bring him back in, he does something and he runs the ball. And I was like, if he's healthy enough to do this, I was thinking just play him. If he can't run, hand the ball off and throw and just say, you are not allowed to run. You eat every sack you have to kneel the ball, whatever you're way better than whatever we're getting from Emory. That's what I would have done. Who was limping the entire game, yes. by the way. And I was like, if he's healthy enough to play and you didn't play him running Emory out in the second half is that's a disservice to Emory too. It is totally, totally. to make him go out there and then get essentially booed. And I don't think people are not booing Emory per se. They're booing the coaches for like, what are you doing? They put Rich, they finally are forced, I guess, to put him in. And, you know, immediately offense picks up, even on a play where he kind of uh, throws it short to gamble on like kind of a. He misses an easy. Yeah, yeah. Big but play. easy big to play. watch him move all the way down the field and then, okay, here's the guy who's open. I didn't get it there, but. <laughs> I even heard people around me saying, well, at least he threw it to the right person, right? Which is not <laughs> a pretty low bar, but we hadn't had that, right? There's lots of other plays where Emory, just even live, you can see. Here's the open route. You're throwing it over here. Whittemore's wide open. Not that you're going to see that on every play, but I, it's crazy how different the offense looks every time Richardson is in there, and our coaching staff is just unwilling to do it. Anyway, end rant. Yeah, But I did think, just a note on Richardson moving forward, obviously very limited in what they asked him to do or allowed him to do. Like you said, he got super conservative. But, I mean, he's the guy. 
we're going to talk about Billy Napier's priorities. But the first thing I would do when I got the job is like, give me Anthony Richardson's phone number. I'm calling him because he's got to stay on this team. And you do whatever you got to do to keep him with the Gators because you have a ready-made guy who can be a superstar. Now, he might not get there. I want to continue to put caveats around there. But, yes, nothing in this game was like dissuaded me despite the fact that he didn't look like he normally does because the offense wasn't allowing him to do that. But with that being said, the best throw of the game by any quarterback on the field was the absolute NFL-level dime to shorter in the back of the end zone. Yep. For Don't sure. sleep on the level of difficulty for that pass. And most importantly, and I'm going to break this down on film, he throws that route exactly on time to the exact right place to where Shorter should have caught it clean. They should have caught that clean. There's no bobble necessary. He put that ball right into his hands on the back line. That is a, a very tight window out of 10 yes. difficult level throw. And if he waits even a quarter second longer, it's either a pick or a batted down pass. He didn't. He reads it. He sees the gap. He throws to grass. He puts a perfect ball up there height-wise. I mean, that is displaying everything we've talked about. And look, quarterbacking is not magic. It's not luck. I'm going to keep saying it. It is technique that you can you can look at and you can see. And the rest then is how well do you handle pressure? Do you make the right reads under the gun? And teams are going to attack you in different ways. But make no mistake about it. There are not many quarterbacks in all of college football who would make the throw with the timing and the accuracy, the precision, the velocity, and ball placement that he put on that ball. And that is why there's an exciting future for Richardson. Because if you have a guy who can do that at all ever, then you have a chance to make him into something special. So that throw, obviously, I think, you know, was the second most exciting play. The most exciting play, obviously, was our boy Pierce running helmet off, finishing the play for a touchdown, and then getting... The most nonsensical illegal participation penalty, you know, that you get along with Florida State because they both get playing. But what a final moment for a guy, Allen, who, along with Shorter, played every single down, no matter what the score was, no matter what the situation was, extremely hard, consistently, publicly, and seemingly privately talk about their pride for being a Florida Gator. These are the kind of kids and guys and men you want representing your university. And I just couldn't think of a better sign-off. Pierce had gotten hardly any carries up until that point in the game. And they basically just decided, just forget it. Just give it to him every single time. It was magic. It was awesome. It was so well-deserved for a guy who, closing the book on him for me, Alan, means we just wasted him tremendously. This is a guy where if he's at a different school, he's the feature back and you know about him. And at Florida, he was just a guy plenty of other good running backs but there was only one Pierce and I just love that moment for him it kind of displays who he is as a running back just uber uber tough hard to bring down finishes every single one of his runs that was a great great moment yeah I've got Pierce exclamation point in the notes here that this is the thing people are going to most likely remember from this game if they remember it at all is that play and I love it, it I mean <laughs> not the wisest thing to do is run around with your head exposed but I loved it from him and his intensity. I mean, that's a, such a dumb penalty. One, just call him down. If he's touched, call him down. I can see if you're like a defender and your helmet comes off and you're running around. Hey, man, stop. But if you have the ball, what are you supposed to do? I I don't know. If you stop, you're still probably going to get hit. So just as soon as this comes off, you have to blow the play dead. A penalty serves no purpose there. Anyway, side note, but... For Pierce, you know, I think it, it's certainly a waste for Florida as a program and for us fans. 
I don't, it's not much of a waste for him. As he's even said, you know, it's less tread on his or more tread on his tires, right? That if you're the NFL, it's actually kind of like, well, it's kind of a big positive. We got to see what we wanted to from this guy, and he barely had any carriers carries. So I don't know if it's a big deal, but it helps his draft stock a little bit, probably. In some sense, the fact that he hadn't run the ball at all, um, or certainly doesn't hurt it. No, I think it does help it. I think, like what you said, you can see on film. You don't need to see anything else. Running back is one of those positions, right? What's your breaking tackle rate? What's your what's your balance level? You can see all those things, and it's not his fault. The coach wasn't playing him as other coaches would have. And as you just said, in a world where mileage means everything to the NFL on running backs, he has hardly any for a guy who runs with his kind of profile. Yeah, and certainly enough to give you enough of a film breakdown in him that you see everything you want to see. And played enough, you know, enough pass pro and all those things like that. There's, so there's no limitation on He's not Correct. like a mystery. No. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's a weird career tra- trajectory for him because I think he could have been an all-timer here at Florida, at least statistically and record-wise. You know, he's very talented. I don't know he's not in the upper-tier talented guy. He's not a Fred Taylor or something like that. But, I mean, he could have had just an obscene amount of yardage had he been getting 20 to 25 carries a game. Oh, especially because he's so good as a pass catcher. Yep. He really emerged as, a, as for a guy with his, again, running profile who developed the hands he had. For sure. And I think he's going to play in the NFL for a long time. He might never be an all pro, but I'd be shocked if he didn't have a really great career. Yeah, he should be a useful NFL running back for sure. Um, yeah, because he's dependable in all three phases now. It's great. Just. Man, I always have fond memories of him. Wish again, the generation wishes he would have got a chance to really show he could do while he's here. Anything else you want to note on the offense before we move to the defense? Happy we scored enough to get it done. Obviously, it was a mirror of our score for the most part. If Emery stayed, the whole game would have been different. Right. We had a lot of people on Twitter ask us what would the score have been uh, before the game. Hey, you know, it seems like Emery's hurt. Could be that A. Rich is going to play. What do you think is going to happen? We didn't answer those questions. We kept hearing conflicting rumors, which is what wound up happening. But, of course, the answer is Allen and I both would have picked a win over Florida State for sure. Had, yeah. had Richardson played the entire game. Hands down. That was an Emory pick, and that's what almost happened. That game could have gone have lost either way. Game. And I think if Emory stays in and there is no Anthony Richardson, we're going to probably wind up losing that game despite the fact that the defense played well for you know three quarters of that game. So, we're done. The season is now done. A bowl game will happen, but it won't look anything like what we just saw as far as that goes. Well, maybe. This well, a bowl stuff. game may not happen. We'll talk about that. But point is, like, it's in the rearview mirror now. And all the things we've chronicled will forever live in this podcast format. And it will also forever live online in the YouTube channel. So it's there to watch and view. But thankfully, we ended the story with how we wanted the story to begin in the first place. We just didn't get there. But at least it ended nicely i'll take a good ending i'll take it all right the florida defense fsu has 203 yards passing 145 rushing five of 12 on third down that's 42 percent they had two picks one fumble cox had four sacks and the team had eight tackles for loss uh fsu's quarterback travis ends up going 18 of 29 for 202 yards one TD, one pick, 102 yards rushing. That's really where he does his damage. That's where he damaged Florida for sure. Um, he's out for a little bit of the game in the second quarter with a little bit of a shoulder stinger, but comes back and makes the game close again. Um, so not much to say here, really. <laughs> Florida does not play nickel mostly in this game. Played 
three to four linebackers, depending on how you define them. Bernie played a lot out in coverage. That was a significant change for this game. The defense has played better, obviously, the last two weeks than they showed against Samford. Does that change your opinion of C-Rob and maybe any of the things that he put out there? No, because I still think you look at the linebackers outside of Hopper and they're just not fundamentally sound. And Hopper. Well, what about as a coordinator? Well, really? I think I think it. So does it change my opinion of him? No, I still think that for him to put the linebacker productivity, quality, fundamentals out there for so long indicates that maybe he doesn't get it either. But as a coordinator, he at least got it more than Grantham did, which doesn't take much. That's the sick part about this, right? Grantham coached in the NFL. At one point in time, Grantham had some idea of what he was doing, and the game just left him. And it's obvious by how he played it. So the fact that you just mentioned something that we have never seen Grantham do, ever. We played in this game, Alan. We played dime. We played nickel. We played base. We changed our personnel based upon the play. Who would have thought that? That's unbelievable. We actually were like, rather than just a rotation, we had a rhyme and reason to who was coming in the game based upon their personnel. Who would have ever thought that that would make any sense? And so obviously, that alone is such a low-hanging, obvious thing to do. I guess we give credit for doing it because Grantham did it. Sure. But it wasn't like there was anything that had been done that you thought, man, he's really innovating. It's only been a couple of weeks. And look, I think you just have to take the history of a certain guy. C-Rob's very young. I partially feel bad for for riding him as hard as I have to because it seems like he's a nice guy. The players like him, but he does need to figure out his coaching because he just you can only go so far if your on field product is so poor and it's just poor. It's poor. Florida's linebackers are poor. They were poor in this game again. Um, Hopper was great. Hopper is fantastic, but anyone else is poor. Bad gap control, bad fills. They don't scrape well. They don't move well. They just don't do things well. And that's on your linebacker coach who's been there from the beginning. But sure, as a play caller, Florida's defense definitely tightened up. They played things more simply. And largely, they just played some fronts that made sense. Just get out of the nickel, which they did. And they did not play Trevez. I think Trevez has been you know, unavailable. Um, I'm not even sure. Yeah, they didn't really announce the he, he, hasn't he, played he basically while. hasn't played at all. And so there's something. I'm going to give him big credit there. No offense to Trevez, but he is the worst defender Florida has. And he just didn't see the field anymore, which was largely helpful to this Florida defense. <laughs> So, sure, yes, I'll, I'll say that he gets some credit for a small improvement there. But, again, not something I'm going to look at and say, this is the guy I would like to keep around well, or certainly an not. elevated position to. But, but let me encapsulate it with this. The defense played hard. After the Sanford game, which was a total disaster, they gave him everything they had. They played super hard. They were flying around the field. They were playing committed football. They were doing their best for him. He did get that out of them. So they, he recharged the batteries after that one-week debacle, and he got them going. And obviously, they did have a lot more success. Yet both of these games, Alan, both of these games, the Missouri game and then the Florida State game, the defense just faded out in the fourth quarter. When it mattered the most, they just disappeared, and they got driven on, and they got scored on, which you know is not great. But Florida winds up winning one, losing the other. Either way, it was more coherent. It was better. And, and you know, praise the Lord. We saw some different stuff besides nickel. Yeah, as the beginning of the game, we're like, wait, I'm counting linebackers. Like, wait, we don't have a nickel back out there. It was almost like I couldn't, I had to look like three times. Am I seeing the right personnel? Is that, nope, that is a linebacker. Okay. Um, and, you know, it largely worked for the most part. You know, even some of FSU's 
bigger plays throughout the game were, you know, scrambles by Travis, um, who's a really cagey, crafty runner. Should give him credit. Like, he's a hard dude to bring down. But I think an excellent defense would have just leveled them. Like, they're doing stuff out there that's – there's nothing tricky about it. They do not have a quarterback that can threaten you. They don't have the offensive line that can actually do anything. They don't have the receivers to make you worried. Um, basically, it's Travis scrambling and maybe throwing a deep ball that they can get some hands on. They, they had a, and He had a great throw and a great catch that moved them halfway down the field. And I was like, well, if you can do that – God bless you. You know, good luck. I want to see you do that again. And so, yeah, the defense yeah, was not there at the end, but enough, enough, like slowed them down <laughs> enough to get the win. And I, I do think we have to give credit to Christian Robinson in this, that after that Sanford game, like you said, seemed like the wheels had come off and we were going to give up 100 points apiece the next two games. And we didn't. We got the win against FSU. Brenton Cox, a lot of pressures. We'll see when the book and him is done. I mean, very talented guy. Also gets called off sides because he doesn't make it across the line of scrimmage. And just a lot of like head scratching plays from him. Personal foul, things like that. It's not a guy I really want to rely on, but he is a talented dude. And he can get it done on a one-on-one rush. Yeah, I think someone just has to get through to him that playing defensive end is not all about getting pressure. Unless you come in only in obvious passing situations in the NFL and that's your job, which there are, there are a few specialists like that. But for the most part, you can't play every play like it's pass. And that's what he does. He flies up the field too far. He leaves his gap quite often. He, he takes risks that hurt the team. But this was the perfect matchup for him because Florida State's quarterbacks, have, you know, any one of them. And Mackenzie Milton would be the one that has the better pocket presence, but he played two plays and threw the worst pick. Yeah, you could see wide open receiver, by the way, the first pick he throws that he floats over to Torrance. I mean, he makes the right read, sets his feet, has an easy 15 yard first down completion. And he just bad ball. Great story. Mackenzie Milton, unfortunate year for him. But, you know, for Cox it's perfect. It's a guy who escapes the wrong way. Cox is always going to over pursue. He's escaping right into him frequently. Um, And I'm not knocking Cox for this. I think I'm just frustrated because of what you said. Cox has a lot of talent. And I've seen him improve in some things, but he just seems to hit a wall where he's not going to play intelligently. He's not going to play the run. He's just not going to play it. Not going to play the run. He's going to go hero mode. And he's going to have a game like today where he had four sacks, which is fantastic. But on film, if you're an NFL scout, you're also saying yeah. the other times he's not getting sacks, though, he's not helping his team. And that's not good. Football's a team game. So it's, it's both of those things, but good for him for getting four sacks. That That's a hard thing to do for any college football player, especially against a rival. He will take it with him forever, and the game sort of embodied how he plays the position. All right, anything else you'd like to talk about on defense before we move to special teams and my favorite play of the game? It was nice to get the turnovers, Yeah, you know, like you imagined. Uh, I thought that Jason Marshall's pick, uh, pick or no pick, you couldn't really tell, right? Great that was defense. a great play by him. Nice work. He's, he's been staying on top of routes, which we talked about. I mean, he's going to be absolutely excellent. And, and I thought Florida playing four down linemen was the main thing to take home with this. That was very helpful for this Florida defense. They only played seven snaps in it, but seven snaps, timely snaps, that's huge. As opposed to getting eight yards on first down, they might have gained two. So I thought they were much more tactical, and that's where we'll give this Florida defense credit. I have to imagine that Paul Pasqualoni had some influence on what was going on here because 
they were this is not what Grantham does, right? He's a three no. four guy, he doesn't do this stuff at all. I can't imagine C Rob, who's thirty one, who's only learned under Grantham, was inventing these things. It has to be. Uh, it was very vanilla stuff, but it was also what you would typically do. It's first and ten. I'm going to put four down linemen in there. What looks to be a run personnel package, and I'm going to limit them to two yards. That yeah, works. and what you know what? Hey, you got you. You don't have to play nickel. I don't know if the if someone explained the rules to you, but you're allowed to not play it. So that was good. Okay, and that's what the take home. So yeah. that's it. So that's nice. It's over. Uh, I do think though, transitioning, and we're not going to do our season recap right now, Alan. There are pieces on the Florida defense. Like if I'm Napier, if I'm coaching, I want to look at these teams and I want to say, are there pieces on either side to build around? And the answer is on both offense and defense, there are key top-level SEC players that are there and available. And that has got to be encouraging to the next staff. They're they're not going to be void of top-level guys. They will have a few of them. There will be issues with depth and roster construction. But there are guys on both sides of the ball who can flat-out play football. And that should only get better if they can get better coaching, especially on the defensive side. Okay. Maybe the best play of the day. The one I enjoyed the most. FSU gets all the way back. Chance to win the game if they can recover the onside kick. I don't think I've ever seen this before. Whiffs on the kick, except touches it just enough to knock it over. I was like, I don't know what the ruling on this is if he didn't kick it, but I think he did touch it, and you can't do that. That's where the Gators get the ball. Unbelievable. I mean, just so thoroughly hilarious and all as FSU as you could get, I guess. It was a super fitting ending to this kind of game. Yes. It took forever in the second half. We're reviewing every call, and if any one of you can explain to me why they've decided the review has to be on one side of the field, There's outlets everywhere. You can plug that little camera in anywhere you want, or you could charge the battery and not plug it in. Why does the ref have to run 70 yards all the way across the field to go look at a little four-inch screen to figure out what the heck happened? And he did it like six times. So at the end of all of this, you get one more screen look just to make sure that he actually touched the ball, which he did. But in real time, Alan, it was unbelievable. I thought he was stepping over it to fake it like you'll see teams do. And the other guy was going to kick it across the formation. But obviously upon replay, you can tell he just barely touched the top of the ball. And just again, a fitting ending for like a sloppy, funky, weird Florida, Florida state game. And if I'm a Florida state fan, Florida again, right now is like on the eve of newness, right? There's newness. It's a new Christmas present. You're going to open it. You're going to see where it takes you. You have hope you have whatever, but for Florida state, you're like, okay, well, we did get better, which is true. And then mm-hmm. we just lost to like a pretty listless Florida team that was playing with one arm tied behind their back. And to end it all, like our kicker barely kicked the top of the ball and we didn't even get a chance at an onside kick. Like frustrating times for them. Yeah, I think Norvell is going to enter into next year on a – it's going to have a shorter leash, right? I don't know if when they're going to have the money to be able to buy him out if they felt like they had to. No, I think they could still improve and be good next year. If they can make some major changes, right? I'm not out on Norvell as a coach totally, but I have not watched FSU play every game and they did get better, but they kind of topped out at barely acceptable. And even that's probably a little too high. So I don't know. I certainly in the arrow, if it's pointing up, it's only pointing up barely. Yeah. Next year will tell us, I think, all we need yeah. to know. And he's recruiting Norvell. at an okay rate. 
yeah. for how bad they've been on the field. Right, right. He is recruiting better than you'd expect given how bad they've been. But there's a lot of questions Florida State will have to answer, and most of them will be answered this next year, his third year. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, done with that game. Obviously, the huge, huge news that I'm sure all of you have been reading about and discussing that Florida has hired Billy Napier, the coach of Louisiana. This happened pretty fast in just one week's time, really. I think this is a just, you know, go ahead and not bury the lead here too much. This is a great hire for Florida. From right now, sitting here on November 29th, whatever this is, I'm excited about this hire. A lot of people have asked me, just in person when I see him out on the street or whatever, hey, what? they don't know who Billy Napier is. Like, what do you think? I'm like, well, this is the guy you and I both preferenced, right? That doesn't place him in the context of like how great is a, a candidate overall in the history of coaching searches. But they went out and got the guy we thought was the best guy. And so I think from that perspective, I can't be anything but really happy about it. Well, I mean, just let's pause right there. And but when the news broke, what was your reaction? It felt I was it was expected at that point. I think I had gotten some right. some information leading up to it that, that was what was going to happen. Um, so it wasn't a shocker. This wasn't a USC no, but to, it was. But the answer to your question and what you're getting at was I was so satisfied. Mm-hmm. Uh, not because it supported my own research and analytical based opinions, you know, with my three year test and baseline test and other stuff. But I think not, I think I know that if this hire doesn't work out, it was still a good hire. And that's how I felt about the Muschamp hire. I wasn't as high on Muschamp because there were unknowns. I was high on him, like for the unknown factor, but you just didn't know it's a wild card hire. But with this hire, it's it's it matches the Urban Meyer level of excitement in the hemisphere. Urban Meyer did it at Utah, which is a hard, you know, a better school, obviously, than Louisiana as far as winning there goes. But if you look at it, Napier is trending on that Urban Meyer path. He's just going to skip the Utah portion and go to Florida. Now, does that work or not work? We're going to find out. But he excels in all the areas we, we like to measure and mention. It seems like his character test came back glowing with what everyone says about him, how they feel about him, how he is as a person, how he handles himself. So he's checking every single box, right? And we're going to talk about, there's a lot of you I know, or not a lot of you. There's some of you who still, I think, feel like I'm not excited about this. This feels like Dan Mullen part two. I couldn't disagree more. 
We've chronicled this for the past several weeks. If you've been listening to the podcast, you should already know that. Napier did not trend like Mullen at all. He, he trends very, very differently. It doesn't mean he will be successful, as you said, Alan. But now we roll out the red carpet and it's up to Billy Napier. But it is a guy who I think theoretically has a ceiling that potentially could win a title, which we famously said on day one of Dan Mullen's hire, I didn't think Mullen had that ceiling. The evidence did not indicate to me he had that ceiling. Therefore, I was not as excited. I am more excited here because I think he does have that ceiling. So let's chronicle the hires in my lifetime as a Gator fan. Ron Zook, unbelievable head scratcher. I'm a student. I couldn't believe it. It's way to left field. The guy had been demoted multiple times as a coach on other staffs. He had never been a head coach before. What the heck is Foley doing? I mean, just the biggest strangest worst coaching hire not that he's the worst coach possible but that's where you went i mean it is unbelievable that actually happened yeah unreal right so then he basically goes to illinois afterwards and then he fades right back to what he always was kind of a special teams level coach so colossal misfire and then you get urban all right here comes this new offense new guy recruiting guy an all-timer really right and he's an all-timer so obviously super excited when urban came Despite the fact that I didn't love that spread offense at that time, as you've all heard me talk about, I was excited about him because he fit everything else and I could put aside my own biases towards other types of offense. Muschamp comes in. I was cautiously optimistic. I was excited at that time. He was the guy. Yep. It would be wrong to say he wasn't. He was the guy. Um, and you were excited for what could have happened. But it was evident very quickly outside of the recruiting level that things just were not great on the football field. So any excitement you had was sort of like, mm, I don't love it. And so it began to filter through Florida won 11 games that one season. We chronicled it, you know, as friends for a long time. It felt like a mirage. It was a mirage. I was never all in after watching the product, but I was excited. It was far above the Ron Zook hire, below the Urban Meyer hire. McElwain, you and I talked about, just not an exciting hire. It was a weird time to hire a coach. It didn't feel like he really was going to be able to win a title here. There were massive questions about recruiting. He did have a good pedigree as an offensive guy. So it fit in that regard. But there were so many questions about what that was going to be like. I wasn't waking up excited. Plus his persona, how he handled himself, even how he looked when he was delivering kind of the Florida brand wasn't something that sat particularly, you know, perfect with me. Then I got Mullen, which we've chronicled that very well. This podcast existed or we talked about it in depth. Felt like a floor guy, not a ceiling guy. Felt like a guy just wasn't really fully behind. And now I'm at Napier. So this is for me. This is number two. Urban Meyer, number one. Number two is Napier. Number three would have been Muschamp in order of like excitement of how the hire. And Napier may not work out. That's okay. I'm going to keep saying that. Like I'm playing the numbers game here. If you hired four different Napiers, one of them is going to work out. You just don't know if Napier is the guy that's going to be that guy. Perhaps Fickle, right, is the, is the better guy. Could be. But all that being said, he passes all the tests, Alan. He's only really spent his entire coaching career except for one year in the South. He has connections to all of the best current coaches, Dabo Sweeney, Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher. He's worked the state of Florida, state of Louisiana, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, everything in the South. You name it, he's done it. He knows these people. He's got 10, 12, 14-year relationships in these areas. He's familiar with winning at big programs. He's won national championships on various staffs. And he took Louisiana, a program who had never won more than nine games, and every single year put them in their conference championship game. He's now won 10 games three years in a row. He elevated them to the number one recruiting spot each and every single year. 
and his win rate is now slightly better than Urban Meyer's was. He's at 31 and he's at 32 now, I think, in five. And Urban Meyer was like 31 and four, but they're basically interchangeable, right? That is incredible stuff. So any way you slice it, if you're sitting at home thinking he's Dan Mullen part two, he's not trending like him. Or if you're thinking, I don't know who he is, doesn't matter. Plenty of coaches are just like that. Did you know who Lincoln Riley was? Bet you didn't. He was some guy on Oklahoma staff at 33, right? So this is a huge risk to hire anyone. You can't guarantee you're going to get somebody, but I would much rather have this guy, Alan, than what other people want. A guy who's coached before but hasn't won. He's looking for a second job, a Bill O'Brien kind of guy. I don't want a guy who's already failed at some level. I want a guy who at least has a future in front of him that is not written yet. And if he can't get it done, we'll go to the next guy. But for me, I'm ecstatic. That's why I drove by the stadium filled with pride thinking, man, it's been a long time since I've had this level of excitement. And now, of course, our job on this podcast is to guide you each and every week to the process, giving you the same exact evaluation we gave you on Mullen with those three key areas a coach must fulfill. And we'll see if the excitement matches the reality as we move into the Napier tenure. But as of right now, looking forward into it, I'm very excited about everything I've learned about him, about the data, the evidence, and where we are as a program. I love it. Yeah, I think, you know, Napier, I don't like this word, is not, quote unquote, the sexiest hire, right? It's not splashy. It didn't cause, like, everyone to stop what they were doing and, like, run to the internet. It was very smart for all the reasons you said, and I'm going to add on a few more. You know, and unless you were going to hire, unless you could somehow do what USC did and pull Lincoln Riley or Nick Saban or Dabo Sweeney, like a sitting head coach who had already accomplished something, this is like the premier version of that. I think the reason that he's a less known is he didn't quite have that moment where they went undefeated and they were challenged. They went to a New Year's Six Bowl and like beat up, like upset a, you know, top tier team. This is like, you know, Boise State had that moment with. Um, Oklahoma, Utah had that moment where they came and beat Alabama, you know, where they were undefeated and people were talking about them, man, could they beat one of these top teams? They Louisiana lost just enough that they didn't quite get there. But like, I, I just didn't, he didn't have that national moment where people were talking about him in a way like, you know, even with, um, Tom Herman at, um, Houston, they, they knocked off one of these big time programs. Now Louisiana beat. Iowa State, I believe, you know, they were doing some stuff. I mean, when you look at their record, it's great, right? Everything they're doing is great. Um, But I think that's part of the reason people are a little like, like who? You know, not knowing about it is fine. But when you dig in, like we have, there's almost really no, the only other person I think you could put in his category is Luke Fickle right now. Is like in terms of up and coming coach who hasn't coached at a power five level. And he's the better version of Napier, to be clear. Yeah. But zero ties to the South. And I mean zero. Right. And that's why I like Napier. So one, his age, but he's 41. Yeah. Not that you have, there's a specific age, but I like the younger ascending hire here. Now, if he was 43, it's not like I don't, like I couldn't hire him. Sure, it's a mentality. We covered this. We talked about this. Right. Um, I do like that he's recruiting oriented theoretically right that is something people talk about him now there's certain hires where people talk about him as are people as the first thing you put on his resume is like coordinator i think the first thing people say about billy napier is recruiter slash like 
leader coach. Yeah, CEO. Yeah, he right. hits the home runs. In so the CEO he's kind of the inverse of Mullen in this sense that he's known as a recruiter and as a coach. He didn't make his bones on his um, coordinator chops, right? Doesn't mean he's a bad one. Now, he did get fired from Clemson, right? And he's talked about how that was a part of his journey. He is an offensive-oriented guy, but he, he's not coming from a coordinator role where he gets elevated from that. He's coming from a co- head coach role. So um, he's not a guy who I don't believe calls plays for them. So, right, that he would employ an offensive coordinator. So he's not that kind of guy, right, where you're, you're looking at him. He's, Dan Mullen is the coach slash OC. Napier turns into other direction, right? And I think that's what Florida needs. This is not a place where you could hire a guy like Florida anymore and just kind of roll into recruits like you could maybe when Steve Spurrier was hired, that his schematic advantages and his bravado would just, you didn't have to focus on recruiting because Florida was such a rich, talented place that you could just accumulate recruits without everyone else coming in and poaching. It is not the current state of the world. So you need a recruiting oriented person here, or at least that being a very, very big strength of theirs. And so for me, he just checks every single box. Right. We're going to talk about the risks here, but anything else that you like about the hire? Well, do you know who else was not a coordinator? I got this question a lot. Are you worried that he didn't make it back to being a coordinator at Alabama? He got passed over. Right. Right. He went to Arizona State where he was a coordinator. But there was this sort of concern. Well, who who wasn't a coordinator that we just mentioned in our coaching search ever at any point in time? Urban Meyer. Right. Never a coordinator. So this idea that people have drummed up that you have to be what you just said, some sort of savant coordinator is nice and fun and cute. But look at how most of those guys have worked out. They haven't. You know who else wasn't a coordinator? Dabo Sweeney. Hmm, interesting, right? So I think what matters is you have to have a mix of these traits we talked about. That's what you want, but you also have to pass these baseline tests because you can't just fall in love with a CEO model coach if he's not winning and he's not recruiting, right? But at the end of the day, the best coaches in the modern game are excellent CEOs and recruiters, period. Nick Saban is a gifted football coach, but make no mistake about it. He is the best CEO and leader and recruiter in all of college football. He's the best at that. That's more important than his on-field coaching ability, and he'd be the first to say that to you. So Napier trends heavily in that direction, where our wild card of wild cards, Lane Kiffin, is seriously deficient in that. And he's a wild card in that at best. Has he has he revamped himself? Does he really get that? Is he able to pour into the culture of the organization? Does he have rules for himself? And is he able to kind of build something over time? Can it sustain itself, right? So Napier could just wind up being a builder and he cannot build it at a school like Florida. That's possible, right? But everything on his resume right now says... We don't know that, and there's nothing to suggest he couldn't do it, right? There's no weird piece of evidence, Alan, that says, hmm, I don't know if it's going to translate to Florida. There isn't. There's no roadblock in front of him other than it's a new challenge. We'll have to see if he's able to create the same success he had there. But everything lines up, and I think what's happened in the past two days, in my opinion, is USC gets... Perhaps the, the greatest steal of all time, I think. Maybe. I mean, it's up there. He has not won a national title, but Oklahoma's never had a coach leave for anywhere else ever. Lincoln Riley boldly turns down LSU, a job that 
many people, including you and I, would think is a, is is you know a better place overall to perhaps win a title in what we're going to talk about in a second, like traditionally. And certainly, if he's not going to go to LSU, he's not going to go to USC, or he's not from there. He's a Midwestern guy. He has no no connection to California other than that he recruits it a lot. No one's reporting this. No one's even saying it. And meanwhile, USC's just been quiet. Franklin signs a new contract. Mel Tucker signs a new contract. Dave Aranda signs a new contract. Like all the coaches are gone. And LSU fans are full of glee. And then whammo, the headline of headlines, Lincoln Riley goes to USC. And the Florida fans who are like, we need that buzz. Strickland went one for one. Yeah, that's nice. But they just, they just, we missed it, right? We should have taken this guy. And we're going to break into that. But I think that stole what would have happened is I think people would have looked into the Napier hire and it would have been everything we're telling you. Wait a minute. 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 Which is, by the way, Alan, how the LSU fans are feeling right now. There's a whole lot of LSU fans. The more they read about Napier, the more they see it are thinking, what have we potentially done here Mm -hmm. by not even putting this guy on our short list in our own backyard? And that's the kind of guy Napier is. We called him the educated footballer's pick. And I think that remains to be true. What that means for him is he is going to have a short opening leash. Lincoln Riley at USC will get a long opening leash. It'll be very short for Napier because most fans are not going to dive in like we are. They're going to turn on the product next year. And if it doesn't look good right away, there's going to be turmoil. So he'll have to get off to a good start, I think, to build and prove, hey, he belongs here. And that's why I think what we're going to talk about a lot next year is year one for him is going to be pretty important relative to how year one might be for a guy like Lincoln Riley. So let's talk about the risk of hiring him, right? So every coach comes with risks, right? I mean, Lincoln Riley has his risks, but those are minimal compared to like, you know, Nick Saban doesn't have any risks, right? But almost everybody else that was on our list, and we went through a deep bench of candidates last week, carries with it some risk on one side or the other, right? I think the only real risk is that he hasn't done it at a power five level. Right. That's what you're looking at and say, what is his question marks? Right. Um, Can he do everything he's done up a level? And I think, honestly, that's it. The other thing I like about the hire is that he's seems to be very thoughtful and intentional about his career path, that he knows what he's aiming at. He's calculated. I'm trying to use these in positive words. Right. Um, And when Florida came open, he he knew it. Right. So this is a. This is the chance he's waiting for, and he took it. So, But that risk, the G5 to Power 5, if that's the biggest risk, I'm comfortable with that. The question marks on other people were much larger for me. But if you're asking, what's the downside? What's the risk? Well, there it is. I think we should be open about it. As much as we like it, That that's the question mark, right? He's not proven that he can do it. And if he fails, I think that will be probably the summation of you know, the story about why he failed. And that's well said because you have to eliminate the guys who have done it. Like you said, we were not going to get Lincoln Riley. We'll talk about that. So unless you get Nick Saban, Dabo Sweeney, right? Lincoln Riley, you can name a couple others. That's it probably. Those are your proven have done it at that level. Then who are you going to get? You want Mark Stoops? Nope, absolutely not. How do you feel if Mark Stoops is your next Florida coach, right? So let's go through all these names we can start bringing to you. What do you think? Do you want James Franklin? What is James Franklin proven? exactly that he can win right so i think if you start looking at these things and here's something else alan we've talked about this a lot we talked about with mike white we talked about dan mullen and now i'm going to talk about billy napier he's a winner why because he's won something 
Billy Napier can raise his hand and say, I won a conference championship, right? As Luke Fickle can, as some other coaches can, as Urban Meyer could have done. Don't sleep on that. That's a big deal. Actually winning something is important, right? It means you're the best best at what you are competing at at that level. At that level. And again, does that mean that it translates from AAA to the majors? You don't know until you promote a guy. But right now, if you're a baseball fan, Billy Napier is the guy in your organization who is your number one AAA player prospect. That's who he is. That's the guy. And sometimes that guy becomes your big leaguer for 10 years. And sometimes he flames out, right? But ultimately, it's not it's not Major League Baseball team's fault for getting that right or wrong. They can't know it until the guy gets into the bigs. Well, he's in the bigs now. We're going to find out. But there's nothing on his scouting report that says weakness or problem or issue. And I think his firing is a tremendous bonus and benefit at his age. I think much like it's helped Lane Kiffin with his life experiences, I think he has a whole different level of humility, empathy, and drive that would not have happened to him had he been rocket shipped all the way up here and he was on that rocket ship right he was the youngest i think play car caller in power five yeah he was 29 when he got that job from Dabo as an offensive coordinator for clemson and why don't those why is that significant because guys don't get hired for that role at that age so of course that's a risk he flamed out right and had to relearn a different kind of process to get to where he is, is now and i think that is actually like you said beneficial certainly you have to look at it and go why did he get fired and what what's going on? But that for me, I, that's a total like non-factor. I mean, I would want to ask the question, but ultimately, yeah, it doesn't deter me at all. Correct. And let's add one more layer on here. We talked about the interview process. We listed our candidates. We had said last week, you know, Napier was our number one testing-based candidate, and then Kiffin was your wild card. And if you could interview all of them, which Strickland didn't, and often you don't, right? We kind of just mythically say this. Strickland went just for Napier. Uh, during the interview process, which which Strickland had for a long time, spent many hours with him, he gets a chance to learn about his plan, his process, how he's going to do it. And look, Strickland obviously believes that that process is portable to the SEC. Now, again, Strickland can't know any more than you or I or anyone listening can know other than that he gets to at least hear the plan. But let's take a second here to, again, congratulate Strickland on this hire. Yeah. He had a plan. He had an objective. He wasted no time. We boldly said last week we thought this would be within 7 to 14 days. It's done. It's announced. It's buttoned up. He got the number one up-and-coming candidate that fits for the South. Again, I love Luke Fickle. I've been a big Luke Fickle fan. Luke Fickle apparently is not putting his name in anyone's hat to be hired right now. Otherwise, you'd hear him rumor more. He's not doing it. You have agents. You have back channels, right? I don't know what job Luke Fickle's waiting for, quite frankly, but clearly... Or it maybe he's seem not to be one in the South or he wants to stay in Cincinnati, which is possible. But point is, if you look at best available outside of stealing an existing coach, this is the best available guy with the least amount of risk. I think Lane Kiffin has the highest ceiling, which we covered. And he also probably has the lowest floor. And let's be real. We've dealt with McIlwain. We've dealt with Dan Mullen and Scott Strickland, who who wants to be, he's got some, obviously some stuff they've been dealing with, right? And other things we haven't been covering because there's too much rumor mill, but he's got some stuff he's dealing with. But he wants to have a polished brand rep for Florida. And Billy Napier will be that kind of guy. So it just fits it all. It fits it all. Yeah. And so let's talk about the process and timeline a little bit. I think you mentioned we have to give um, kudos to Steve Strickland, I think as ESPN knows him. If you saw 
I saw, <laughs> you that. saw that yeah, graphic. Not Scott, Steve. And also Strickland. Strickland, Strickland is not land, yeah. L-A-N-D. Hilarious. We see this a lot. It's Strickland with an L-I-N at the end. Yeah, it's funny that organization uh, ESPN could mess that up. But um, yes, this is about as quick and efficient in a process as you possibly can have. Now, here's a little bit of maybe why you don't fire Dan Mullen a week earlier. Because I don't think you can hire Billy Napier until yesterday. That he might not have said yes with one more game with that much left of his season. I don't know that. That's just my conjecture. But if Billy Napier is the guy you want to go hire, you don't want to leave it lingering out there for a long time necessarily. I don't know. Well, USC wound up with Lincoln Riley, and they fired Clay Hilton like way early. What week For sure, for sure. But I'm just saying maybe you would still hire – Billy Napier on whatever day. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's unlikely. I mean, look at you, look at USC, for example, they didn't name Riley until the season ended. And right. So then maybe like instead of a one week process, this would have been a two week process, right? Sure. I'm I'm giving him credit for it only being a week. Right. But that's part of the, in the timing of when he fired Dan Mullen. Right. The point was it was directed. Yes. And it was like a, it was like a sniper shot. He Mm -hmm. knew what he wanted to go after. And I think if Napier didn't fit the interview process, he would have gone to step two, which we don't know what that is, but I, I don't think it was, sitting around elephant hunting, no. so to speak. Right. And identifying the right candidate, getting him to commit, right? There has to be that part of you as well. Um, and we'll see what his contract looks like. What is that? How does that shape Florida football for the next few years? A lot of conjecture. I mean, there's some big contracts being handed out. What is the buyout? What is the the salary I'm less interested in? But the buyout, the length, things like that. Um, I'm sure it'll be a lot of money. It has to be at a place like Florida, right? Um, but yeah, well, so there's a little bit more that I want to see before I totally like give my ultimate stamp of approval on the hire and process, but the candidates certainly, and up till now, I think the process, I, I can only give credit to Scott Strickland. Yeah. We can only hope it's an incentive laden contract with a low buyout or something that is, is sort of defining the new era of buyouts which we have been routinely campaigning against mm-hmm. and strickland on this very show has talked about the buyout situation not being something he likes agrees with or wants either so you know he's going to work towards what he can do to make that as favorable as possible and i think most schools are moving in that direction so that will be very fascinating alan as you mentioned to see how the the resources are steward and what it took to acquire napier and what the contract looks like um so that's a good point there as well Okay, you want to answer some of these questions we got about it? Yeah, Ozzy Mutz wrote us some some good stuff. Things we're going to discuss, we'll give him credit because he organized it for us, and we said, we'll just use it. All right, I'm going to ask you first. So Florida is clearly, I think everybody would agree, a top 10 job, probably top 5-ish job in college football. Uh, that's proven by the fact, obviously, that Napier accepted us and did not accept Auburn. Right? I think it's generally known that they went after him, looked at him, and he was no thank you last year. Uh, so in theory, a lot of Florida fans, as Ozzy says, we should be able to hire one of these big name guys, Cliff Kingsbury, Lincoln Riley, Dabo Sweeney, you know, whoever. And even if we missed on all of them, we look like we're going to be big game hunters. This is sort of the Jeremy Foley approach. I'm going to call Mike Shanahan. I'm going to call Bob Stoops. Kind of what he does. We're Florida. We can get anybody we want. They turn you down. Then you're left with Ron Zook, right? Or something like that. So the question is, or the answer is, Ozzy says, hey, I push back against some of these guys I talk with about this because those coaches don't leave. But then Lincoln Riley left. So 
in theory, although LSU looks like they're stuck holding the bag, were they right to go after Lincoln Riley? Should Florida have gone after Lincoln Riley? So this is interesting, right? So on one hand, I I don't think we should be scared off by any other school in the market or we shouldn't go, I don't know if we can make that higher. We should, if there's people that we want to target, absolutely, right? But I do think you have to be realistic. Like, are you going to call Bill Belichick? No. Why not? We're Florida, right? Well, okay, there's limited. There's limits to that scale, right? But if you're looking, we wouldn't say we're not going to hire Billy Napier. We're not going to call Luke Fickle if we want to, right? The Lincoln Riley thing is almost like, a total aberration, right? You said it's one of the biggest, craziest things that's ever happened, right? Not that we shouldn't have called him. Maybe we should have called him, right? Cliff Cleansbury is hilarious to me. Like, I, I think he's great where he's at, but he also got fired by Texas Tech. <laughs> he didn't leave Texas Tech for the NFL. He got fired there. So I don't know if he's your dream candidate after all, right? If you want to put some back channel stuff to somebody you think might take your call, I don't have a problem with that, but I'm not going to go chasing these guys and delay hiring the guy I think is an incredible candidate. So there's a little nuance to this question. Um, Like if you're just going to go like, let's say I, I need to make a splash with this hire. I think that's the wrong thing. I think what fans will respond to is winning right now. You did say this. This is interesting. He's going to have a shorter lease because he has less of a reputation, but if you really think he's the guy for the job, you're not worried about that. Like if he, if we go out and lose to Utah at being the year, it's like everyone's gonna be ugh. But if by the end of the year that thing is moving and we've got a top recruiting class, no one's gonna care, right? So you have to have faith in your ability to actually hire a good candidate. So I don't know. I the big game hunting, like I think it often ends up you looking stupid more than anything. Now, if you ask a guy, let, I'm trying to think about a UF candidate. Let's say we said Dan Quinn is our guy. And we asked Dan Quinn, and he said no, and then we hired Billy Napier. I don't think anyone's like, oh, what were you doing? But, yeah, I think you can end up looking kind of dumb if you miscalculate where you're at. I think the main thing is if you have reason to believe that there's a big game elephant interested in your hunting reservoir, then you hunt that elephant. But if there's no reason to believe that any of these elephants care at all about your land, then <laughs> then you can try to I lure guess, them in. Yeah. But you're going to look pretty foolish when they're like, hey, actually, I don't want to go there, right? Which is what happened with LSU. Lincoln Riley had no intention of ever going to LSU, clearly, because Lincoln Riley, as we're going to break down, doesn't want to compete in the SEC. Oh, hot takes. Right? And that's the reality. And we'll talk about whether that's wise or whether that's you know, a little bit of uh, yellow, if you like Back to the Future, if he's being a little yellow. But I think at the end of the day, Lincoln Riley was not an elephant that was interested in Florida. So we could have called him. We could have pursued him. Hey, we got a job for you. Hey, look at us. He's not going to go there. Why? He would have gone to LSU, who was chasing after him from day one. They tried to lure the elephant into the tiger habitat. They're like, hey, listen, tigers and elephants don't always get along. I'm not feeling good about this, right? This metaphor but, is unbelievable. But either way, I think that that's the key. So, yes, if there was a big game elephant available for us to get and we didn't try to get him, that would look bad, right? Name a coach. If Bill Belichick had floated his name for the Florida job and we just didn't call him, then we're idiots. Okay, that's stupid. But you can start dreaming up who you may want. 
I don't think any of them are actually connected to Florida. Outside of a guy we mentioned, it was Dan Quinn, who was connected to Florida. And you could find merit to want to hire Dan Quinn. He's never been a head college football right. coach. Right. He carries his own questions with He's that, got right? his own question mark. So to me, I thought for the Florida job, for where we are, for who's available, for what we're looking for, for the test that we have, Billy Napier was the best candidate with the highest probability of hiring success. And everyone else was literally an absolute over-the-moon shot if they're established coaching winners. The other guy was Lane Kiffin, who's very intriguing, who finished the season off with a great win against Mississippi State, who, again, has a lot of questions, but I personally would have also been fine with hiring, which is a complete reversal from where I was. And we'll dive more into that. But Lane Kiffin is not a big game hunting right now. He's not. He's like a damaged elephant somewhere trying to rebuild himself, right? So at any rate, I know that people say that, but I think a lot of them just to be oversimplified here, they're just uninformed on what's actually happening. And they're just name hunting themselves. They just want a sexy name. But that's not really what's going on. And again, Lincoln Riley didn't leave Oklahoma for the sexier name of USC. We're going to talk about why he left. And it's not because of a sexier name. That's not what it was, right? So maybe that happens. Jimbo Fisher won it out of Florida State. Not because he couldn't win there, but because he had personal issues there. He had bad memories there. He had stuff with his family going on there. infrastructural problems. He had money issues there. And he was letting it be known he wanted out, right? That's different than you should, you call that guy. If Nick Saban wants out of Alabama, we call Nick Saban. None of those things were happening. All right, question two. The other pushback, which you've already talked about, we can directly answer this one, Alan, is that, of course, while Napier's passing our baseline test, everything looks good. He's going to get eaten alive by this much heightened change of expectations, which is what happened, obviously, to Mullen, right? In and of himself, he did. It got too big for him, too much McElwain, pressure for him. for sure. Happened to McIlwain. So if we hired a more established coach, we'd be taking less risk. My immediate response to this sound is like we said, is what more established coach are you talking about? Yeah, who I would just say put a name naming? on that line. Who is that person? So if you don't like the Billy Napier hire, tell me who you want to hire. You go, I don't know, somebody good. Like who? Right. You want James Franklin, which we could name? Right. So I think that is where like the the conversation ends because once you ask someone to put a name to that question, there isn't one. Yeah, James Franklin is the name. He's the best example of a proven coach who's solid. You want Jim Harbaugh? We could say Jim Harbaugh. He's riding a star right now. He's having this emergent breakout. I guess year, if you say proven right? by the like someone who's won at the at the Power Five level, one meaning yeah. like not gotten fired sure, or so that's, that's a Franklin that's Harbaugh you right. know but you're not going to you could maybe try to steal Franklin but again like do you look at Franklin and think you're going to win a national title if you bring him to Florida like what you have less risk well what, what's the risk well I guess you, you could say I guess zero games well I guess if you had a if you were like wanting to eliminate any G5 coach you would just go okay who's a power five coach right and you want to hire NC State's coach you that's what we're saying like, what are you, what are you looking Forest for coach like, what's you your hire? Goal? Yeah. Colorado's coach. I mean, if it has to be a sitting power five person, right. then I guess Billy Napier's eliminated, but there's not a power five coach. I want really wanted to hire more than Billy Napier. It was a very short list. We talked about the guys like Dave Aranda, mm-hmm. the guys who haven't already not proven yet trending really up and loving it. And yes. And we named them on our list for a reason. Like if NC state's coach was a, a rising superstar, of course. We should have called That's them. even better. Yes. Yeah. But there isn't that guy. Right. That and, guy does not exist. And next year, it could be those guys we mentioned who would be on our list per se. But yeah, I mean, I think that's correct. I think what you're saying is right. I think that viewing it through that lens is correct. And this idea of establishment is so interesting because all of you as sports fans are familiar with the draft, 
NFL, NBA, or otherwise. And these guys have not proven it yet against that level of competition. Of course, it's better for a guy to play in the SEC and then go play in the NFL because the competition is better. But guess what? The majority of the NFL is not made up from SEC players. There are individual players from every other conference, including small ones, that make it to the NFL and they succeed and they thrive and they dominate, right? It's about the person. So if you're just going to blanket eliminate everyone who comes from a smaller school, you're going to eliminate a lot of great coaches, first of all. And second of all, I think you're overly biased towards these power five coaches who are already in their own way, Alan, proving they probably can't get past the station that they're at. They're not winning anything there. What makes you think they're going to win it at Florida? Which was the Dan Mullen question, right? Which we just experienced. We just did this. So we again. just did that hire, and Dan Mullen was the guy you're talking about. And could it have wound up better? Yes, we talked about all the things that could have happened, but here we are. So personally, of course, I would rather hire a guy who's ascending at a Power Five school rather than a G five school. If you had if the guys' resumes were exactly equal, you would hire the power five guy. Right? Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly who you take. And that was James Franklin leaving Vanderbilt. Yeah. That's what exactly. that was. For sure. And but those guys the it's hard to find those guys because yeah, they start to level out pretty quickly. So again, if you have trouble with the maybe you're hired, tell me who you would have wanted to hire. And we'll go from there. And okay. let me let me define that risk yep. with one thing because it's going to filter into the rest of this conversation. The risk for me, for me personally, is is not having a high enough ceiling. That's the risk in hiring. It's I don't care about the floor. I care about the ceiling. And that's why Lane Kiffin was an interesting wild card to me. I don't care about his floor. You fire the guy. You go on. You need a guy who can play in the top level arena. I don't care about being in the second tier. If you're a European soccer fan, I don't sure. care about being relegated. I don't, I don't care about that. I want to play with the big boys, with the top four. That's all that I care about. So therefore, that's the biggest risk. And hence, Billy Napier right now, we don't know. He is capable. He may not make it there, but right now we don't know. And I like that. I don't have any reservations about him not being able to get there other than things we have to create because he hasn't done it yet. That's good. That's a good discussion. I love that you brought in the ceiling principle there because I think that's so... Right, we can overlook that if we're not explicit about that. It has to be a part of the equation, right? If you're looking for the highest floor guy, he's not on your list, right? Because other guys who've shown I can be a capable head coach at the Power Five level, but the ceiling is almost the same as the floor. And if that's what you want, then we're going to part ways in our coaching candidate search, and we're just going in different directions. So, all right, let's let's put ourselves in Billy Napier's shoes here. Let's inhabit him, right? This is we'll go to. If we're doing AD quarter, this is like maybe a little bit of an alternate version of coaching corner. So I'm going to invert these questions here, right? Um, we'll get to the staff question next. But if you were Billy Napier, what would your short-term priorities be? All right, because you got hired yesterday. You're coaching your team in the championship game this week. What else are you thinking about? Maybe I'll just go first here. So here's the things that you're balancing, right? Coaching your team evaluating staff, recruiting your own team, and recruiting future players, right? I think you've got to balance all those things. The thing I would want to – thing I would, like I said, to do first is call Anthony Richardson, make sure he knows that I think he's my number one priority. But you've got to hit the ground running recruiting. 
this class is coming up really soon and it's not going to be your total success or failure. But I think that's kind of thing that gets the lion's share of your attention. That's hard when you're balancing coaching another team, right? But recruiting now and into the later deadline has got to be almost everything for you, I think. And you can figure out the rest later. Um, and yeah, so just to say that, that I think we'll see a little bit. We won't be able to judge him completely. But if he starts to make moves in that category, that category, I think that bodes really well for the future. If he doesn't, that doesn't mean he's not going to do it. But it'll be like, man, that is a really good feather in his cap. He's certainly already said as much, right? He's visiting on Tuesday with Nick Evers, Florida's top quarterback recruit. He's mm-hmm. already making mention he's going to spend his margin time early morning, late nights on Florida and what needs to be done. I he's going to work a hundred hours. He's going to not sleep more, probably. more than that. Legitimately probably, probably not going to sleep. And, and I really like what he's saying. I think his loyalty towards, this is the right type of loyalty, by the way, unlike Dan Mullins where you're loyal in a sub performance level, his comments on finishing the mission with Louisiana are absolutely right. That is your team. It is not Billy Napier's fault that Florida is in this situation. He is now the new head coach, but it would be ridiculous to tell him, in my opinion, to pull away from something he has been working on for the past four years, putting everything he has into it to get this result. He's now playing a colossal championship game versus a very, very good App State team. Make no joke about it. That's a tough team. You want to win that game. You want to go out finishing your own mission for what you built that program on, and you're not about to drop everything and leave them hanging out to dry. With that being said, if he could leave them and do anything and everything to help Florida, the only thing he'd be focusing on would be recruiting. He'd figure the staff stuff out, but he would be night and day, 24-7, build the best recruiting class that you can. And he has been actively talking about that. In fact, Alan, I have already heard more Billy Napier quotes on recruiting than I've heard from Dan Mullen the entire year. And it's been 24 hours. He's already talked about it extensively. The December window, how it impacts everything, how coaches are used to it, how you have to get that done, how he's going to focus all of his margin time on that stuff and staffing. He's already showing he gets it. He's got a handle for it. He knows what it is. He understands the expectations. He's not burying his head in the sand saying, sorry, I'm coaching Louisiana. We're going to have the 50th ranked recruiting class and we'll get to it next year. And that is what you want to hear your coach say and do. And he's backing that up, Alan, with a systematic recruiting approach to Louisiana that's well chronicled. One that's molded from the best recruiters in the game. Jimbo Fisher, Nick Saban, Dabo Sweeney, each with their own strengths for identifying and building things. He's got a plan. This is not new to him. Now, the only real question is how much ground, Alan, can you really cover? Early signing day is such a crunch. Because he's not following these guys. Yeah, He's going to take Florida's list. He's going to have his own guys he trusts look at it, including himself, and he's going to scrub the guys he doesn't want. He's going to begin to try to find a way to shuffle some of them out, and he's going to try to go after some guys who are not yet settled who might be interested with the opportunity that's there. But that is a difficult process, especially when you only have a handful of weeks. There's only so much you can really even do so far under the gun here. Yeah, it's really tough, and you've got to recruit. This is wild in college football. You've got to recruit the guys who are already in the class, the guys who are uncommitted. And I think you have to do some recruiting with your current team. Like if you lost your best players because you're focused on the incoming freshmen, I think that's a major disservice. That Because of the transfer rule and the you don't have to sit down anymore, you really have to sit down and do that. This is almost an impossible task for any coach stepping into the job right now to do 
every one of those things perfectly, but I think you have to prioritize correctly and move forward with that. Again, we'll never know how he did in all this, but man, I would not want to be him this week with the workload that's on his plate. It's infinite. And so uh, hopefully he's making wise choices and prioritizing well and triaging what is the biggest things that we need to do. I think you see him doing that, that he's calling Nick Evers. He's obviously thought, who do I need to call first? In the recruiting class, him, right? So, yeah, a lot of work to be done, and we'll see how this shakes out. Hopefully there's a little momentum there with the new hire, and he can cobble together a decent transition class, right? That's what you're aiming for, decent, right? Because you are way behind everybody else, way, 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 way. And had Dan Mullen not just absolutely lost the recruiting narrative this year, I think a guy like Billy Napier would keep most of the class entirely right. intact. These decommits are the last That's couple weeks. the it's frustrating deep. part yep. is that Florida was already down in the 20s before Dan Mullen was fired. So, again, if you're expecting to see Billy Napier in year one, you know, get to the number seven or eight, that's not going to happen. No coach, not even Nick Saban will pull that off, right? You have to, you have to recognize that. You want to keep your key guys. You want to hopefully steal a few guys that maybe are on the fence, and put together something that, as you mentioned, launches you into your real first recruiting class, which is the next one. Right. When that's something, as we, we'll talk about this a lot more, but traditionally that second class, even for guys who don't end up making it as coaches, but who are good recruiters, that second class is the one you're going to look at as like, what, what trajectory are they on? Correct. Right. It almost tells you everything. Okay. Um, let's talk about staffing. So a lot of conjecture about like who would go, who would not go. Traditionally... You know, coaches are going to bring in almost entirely new staff. Um, let me just start. Who are the guys you would even consider keeping if you're a Billy Napier? And we're talking about Florida staff. Florida staff. Who would Florida you consider? Staff. Well, I think that there's one obvious name. We talked about this a little bit yesterday as a friend group, and that's Brewster, tight end coach, you know, known as a really good recruiter. There's way, I'm going to just stop it right now. And so there's way too many pieces of rumor and speculation and message board conjecture about who's a great recruiter and who's not and why Brewster couldn't recruit as well because he's being hamstrung by others, whatever. We know historically he's an extremely good recruiter. We also know the tight ends have been very, very solid on film. Good unit. They've gotten better. They know what they're doing. They're competent. Gamble's really emerged this season. That's a guy who you say fits the recruiting profile, is a guy who can help you hold your current class together. And is a guy who's done well on the field. So I think he, for me, is the really only obvious candidate. If you're doesn't going, mean you keep him necessarily. It doesn't mean you keep him. But if I'm Napier, I would consider. I talk to him. Was he thinking about? Was he doing? Who do I? Who do I consider for my other tight ends coach? Again, coaches have feel for guys that they like. Right? Coaches know each other. They know about who's doing what and where. What kind of stuff they like. How they want to use their tight ends. But certainly, I think he gets merit. Billy Gonzalez would be a guy based solely on performance on the field with receivers okay this guy's a good receivers coach how is he recruiting again rumor he's not good at recruiting this that and the other but he's somebody that based upon your on field acumen would potentially get a thought do you have your own guy you like who are you competing against him with whatever right and then for me that's it i think brewster's the only one that would probably seriously merit the consideration because of his recruiting profile and if you think Billy Gonzalez is a great recruiter, great. You know the same thing I don't know, which is nothing. I have no idea, right? But historically, he hasn't gotten that tag. So there'd be one. On the defensive side, we talked about David Turner being a guy at the position coach group has been good. He's been a really good recruiter. 
So he's a guy that I would consider. He's lost some luster for me because the defensive line has just sort of slid off the rails with gap control as the season went on, which is weird to me. It's possible that the team went off the rails and we shouldn't hold David Turner accountable for this because that can happen. People start playing hero ball. But he's been fantastic at recruiting that D-line spot, Alan. Fantastic. We have talented players. He's done great in the transition portal. So he's another guy I would consider. But again, I think it depends on who else I'm looking at. Right. If you can upgrade him or not. If I can upgrade him, I would. Because I'm not totally sure with what's been going on on the coaching side. If I can upgrade him, I'd feel fine keeping him. Because of what he's done recruiting-wise. And if I get a good DC in there, I can clean up some of those coaching issues by giving him a directive. Outside of that... I'm fine with everyone else. The other guy, I mean, maybe Jules Montanar, the CB coach. I I don't know enough, right? But the play of Jason Marshall, the improvement of Avery Helmel, who's still not top-notch. Yeah, they've been better. The CBs right? have been, been better. He's known as a little bit more of a recruiter. Again, the recruiting stuff is such a black box to me. You only, we can't it's only know. rumor and conjecture. But Correct. if you talk to people who say that and the current coaching staff says that, I mean – He's another guy who's a younger guy who kind of fits the general profile. But again, Napier might already have 10 guys that he loves and he's already bringing in. Or he's like, yeah, I don't really have a corners coach. This guy is good. He's be- he's above replacement value. I'm going to keep him. The like, players like him. And then we, we talked last week about Nick Savage. Strength and conditioning coach sounds like such a minor role, but in today's modern football – He's one of the most important figures in your entire organization. And that has to be a slam dunk. This guy has more contact than you with the team because the weird NCAA rules, you allow them to be there all the time, all offseason. When you can't talk to them directly, you need an ace there. right? Again, he has to be good at his primary job, quote unquote, strength and conditioning. He has to be excellent at his secondary job, which is almost like offseason head coach. And so if the players like Savage, which they do, which they, they do, do, and you don't have nobody and you don't have a guy you think is like this guy's the actual real slam dunk and maybe they're equal, but you know, the new guy or, you know, your guy better, whatever. Um, that's also someone I think you definitely have to consider keeping. Oh yeah, for sure. And that, that's that, that I think is, it brings us to a good point here. Let's, let's top down this thing. First of all, if, if I'm a head coach, the first thing I'm thinking is who, who can I work with? Mm-hmm. So let's say I've heard that Savage is great, right? Well, ultimately, there's a risk if you keep a guy who's already been here because it's human nature. This guy knows the facility. He knows what's happening. He knows what's good and bad. That can be your best asset because he can be loyal to you and show you the ropes, or it can be your worst detriment because he can sort of be like, I'm doing it this way. I've done it this way. And when you start saying, well, I want you to start doing some of this stuff, you can get pushback. That can be a real problem. So I think you have to have those meetings Hey, I've heard great things about you. Let's see if we're on the same page with our vision for where you want this to go. I want to empower you to do what you want. We've got to make sure we're overlapping here, right? And I think if that fits, then you're like, hey, I feel good about this this partnership and relationship. Let's go. Or obviously, if you're Urban Meyer, he had a relationship with Mickey Mariotti. That was his guy everywhere he went. So he took him with him, right? If you're a guy like Billy Napier, perhaps there is a guy somewhere that you know that you think would leave that you love and you have a great relationship with. Then you take him. But I think Savage has earned the right to stay here if he fits in culturally with what Napier wants. And the second thing is, let's be real here. If I want you to be my defensive coordinator, Alan, you better believe I'm going to call you first and say, look, here's the deal. 
I want you to be my guy. You're interested? Okay, yeah. So let's start some preliminary talks here. Here's who's on the staff on the defensive side of the ball. That's true. Who do you like? Who do you not like? What are you thinking? Do you have a guy you love for these guys? No chance as the head coach am I going to hire a DC and then force him to be with some guys if we're totally not on the same page. Because I'm already starting my team with one arm tied behind their back culturally. I need my DC to love all the people that are underneath him. And that's or be think, okay with them. Or be, yeah. Or the or same thing. I don't have an upgrade there. I kind of like this guy. Let me, let me talk to him. Let me call him. Let me see what's going on. And that's what will happen, right? And that's why you're going to hear floated names first for who the DC would be or who the OC would be because it has to come from underneath them. Again, the head coach is a CEO, and a good CEO has got to make sure the organizational hierarchy flows. Now, if you've got a guy you love, you can pull rank as the head coach. Hey, look, Alan, you're my DC, but let me tell you, this, this defensive line guy, he's an up-and-coming guy. I love this guy. You're going to talk to him. You're going to love him too. Let's get that going. But you have to be careful with that. Mm-hmm. You have to because the coach has got to instill a new culture. He's got to be able to take Florida's program as it is and get it to where he wants to get it. And if you get holdovers who start kind of, hey, I was here before. Hey, I know the players better than you do. I've got some insight you don't have, but they're not really working for you. They're kind of, you know, a double agent that can really totally. hurt your culture building. You, so it's a you lot of that nuanced well. stuff here. Yeah. And so this is where the personnel management comes in. This is like high level culture making and thinking right football is not just x's and o's it's it is relationships there are things that are happening and so yeah those things have to fit together sometimes you're taking a risk right you don't know you think hey me and savage are on the same page everything's aligned and you get into the season you realize it's it's not that's gonna happen occasionally because you can't have perfect perfect knowledge about how things work but i do think there is some advantage to keeping guys who are in the organization because they know stuff. They know how it works. They know the physical, even structure of the place that you don't have to learn everything all at once, right? Um, but here's another mistake that Billy Napier could potentially making. And I don't think he's going to make it. But sometimes coaches want to bring guys with them, right? This has been a criticism of Scott Frost, right? Imported and Mike of, Norvell. Entire yes. Memphis staff came with him. Right. Now, there's pluses that obviously, right, they know what you're doing. You have cohesion. You're on the same page. But if they are not up to that level, you're it's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt you bad, right? If they can't recruit that level or coach to that level, right? So you've got to identify your own staff very well. Who, who's able to make that jump with you? And those are hard conversations. Hey, well, we just got leveled up. I'm taking this guy and this guy and this guy, but sorry, I can't bring you with me. Man, that's a tough conversation. Um but you have to, that's what you have to do. That has to be like part of your repertoire as a head coach is having those conversations. And we've talked about Dan Mullen, that being a major deficiency of his seemingly. And so what, how does Billy Napier handle that? If he just imports his entire staff, now maybe they're great, but all of a sudden you've put a major question mark for me about like your decision-making process in that. Yeah, that, that seems so unlikely. For sure. Which is good. You're asking the right question. We're starting with a blank slate. But thankfully, some insight into Napier, right? This is a guy who surrounded himself with coaches who were routinely only hiring the best guys. That was their sole goal. Whether they knew them or not, phone calls are made. I need you. You are the best guy. The rumor mill is already out there. That he's looking at two guys that are doing really nice jobs defensively, right? And then Tom Herman's a sexy, floated offensive coordinator kind of name. These things could all be false, but you know what you're not hearing? You're not hearing rumors he's going to keep his entire staff. And that's a great rumor because right. no Florida fan should want him to keep his entire staff. That should not be what you want. Again, you're at Florida. You want to surround yourself with an all-star staff. 
Caleb Sturgis, friend of the program, one of his biggest knocks against Dan Mullen from the beginning was, show me Dan Mullen's coaching tree. There isn't one. He's not wrong. There is not a Dan Mullen coaching tree because nobody emerges from Dan Mullen's program coaching anything. Right. You would like. And that's not what you want. You most need to your be guys hiring hired talented away. guys yeah. to get hired away, much like what happens with Nick Saban and others. You need those guys to go places. That means you know what you're doing and you can identify talent. And Especially your so needs yeah. to embrace that at Florida. It's been so just been really, really missing, you know, obviously in the past several years. So here. especially at the lower level, your OC and DC should get hired all the time if you're evaluating the right guys. And your position coaches should get elevated to coordinator jobs either by you or by somebody else. Now, if you're a place like Clemson who's famously kept their guys, right? If they if they feel like they want to be coordinators and you're the best spot. It's fine if they stay there. Well, especially forever. if they're top-notch guys, right, right, then that's right. their choice. Fine, sure. Right. That people are trying, but the point is, people should be trying to, to hire them to take them. Absolutely right. Those calls should right. be happening, and I think Napier embraces that philosophy. Mm-hmm. So, thankfully, we're going to be able to put to bed the damn Olin philosophy of extreme loyalism and instead move into what is right, which is: Does this person help me make a better Florida Gators football team? And of course, we will be watching all of those things. But hopefully, that gives you a nice insight into kind of what is happening on day one through ten in a head football coach's mind. What are they looking at? What are the risks? What are the pros and cons? It's not just as easy as that guy's great. I'm going to take him. Again, you have to culture build here. You have to make sure you're building a team that is unified, that is cohesive, that works well together, and that shares the same vision for where your program is going. There are different ways to win. You'd much rather have a guy who fits your vision and is really good than a guy who's quote unquote an all-star, but totally disagrees with where your program is going to go. That's not going to work. You have to have an aligned vision. And then you want people that disagree with you along the way because they share your vision. They say, hey, we're going the same place, Alan. But I think this is a better way to get to that place. Mm-hmm. Not, hey, I want to go over here. I don't want to go where you want to go. Now we got a problem. Okay. Well, a lot of news that are happening. Well, I'm sure we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. So we'll evaluate some of the choices as much as we can. Start looking at if we do make offensive and defensive coordinator hires, like who are these people? Because I'm sure... We don't know them, right? We're not. If it's the Houston defensive coordinator, I'm sure most of you have not been watching closely all of Houston's defensive alignment. So we'll try to get you caught up on that once those hires are made. We're not going to do a ton of speculating in that end and like preview every coordinator hire out there because that would be an insane. Yeah, and we will give you some teasers on this very podcast coming up on a few of those guys that have been rumored just to whet your appetite. All right, you want to do the coaching corner for us? There's one coaching corner from the game. We'll revisit the Florida-Florida State game. All right, Alan, the score is 24-14. Florida has the ball fourth and one at their own 43 with just under four minutes to go. Florida elects to punt, and then they punt Florida State all the way to the eight. So they get a great result. Do you like punting here with the 10-point lead with four minutes left, or would you have gone for this and essentially taking an additional two minutes or more off the clock if you get it man in the stands i was very conflicted right so normally i feel like i i have like a a gut feeling even if i'm not running all the math in my head at the moment i did not know what i want us to do usually that's a good thing it's like even i think from the other side what what would they want us to do i did not have a feeling on that and it wasn't even really fourth and one it was fourth and about less than half of a yard there it was close but we had not picked it up on the previous two plays and we'd done kind of the plays I would have wanted us to do I'm almost always in favor of 
clinching this, right? But the the score of 24-14, the way the defense had played up until that point, the time left on the clock, you know, you're just under four minutes there. I did not hate punting. Honestly, I don't have a feeling of what I would or wouldn't have wanted to do. I think theoretically, if I thought I could get it, I would go for it if I felt really good about it. But in that situation right there, I don't have a good feeling about what the coach staff should have done or should not have done. Yeah, this is a very nuanced one. I think for me, it's a lot of context and what's been happening in the game. So Florida had struggled multiple times on third and one to convert Mm -hmm. in the second half. So there's not a high degree of confidence you have. Your offensive line's not playing well. Florida State has been getting pressure. They've been stopping you on those plays. And that then factors into what I think is the most important thing, which is the momentum factor. Of course, I love momentum. It's how I invest in my firm. And it involves humans. And I think with momentum in this game is 24-14. Florida State's offense has really struggled to drive. If they score on you, it's going to take them quite a bit of time anyway. And if you get the first down, you get some momentum. But Florida State still feels alive. Hey, we've got to get stops. We have timeouts left. Let's get the ball back. If you don't get it, Florida State has a surge of momentum. And the crowd feels anxious. You feel anxious. Now they're almost in field goal range anyway. And there's like this, oh no, we're in a tight football game feeling. By punting, you still felt like you were winning by 10. By going forward and not getting it, you almost feel like your back is against the wall. So I think the risk reward of that, given what had been happening with Florida, given how their game plan was, that makes sense. But if you and I are coaching this team and it was a different mentality in this game and we're being aggressive consistently, going for it might make a lot more sense. But I think given the context of what was happening, I was perfectly fine with Florida punting there. It was disappointing to have to punt there. We should have been able to sustain a drive there and run the clock out at least, you know, till like two minutes or so, but we weren't getting it done. The play calling wasn't great. Um, Fine with it. Yeah. Let's say we had gotten into third and we'd gotten into fourth and one on some other kind of play and you hadn't just run the Richardson power play. I would have wanted us, I think, to dial that up. If that had been consistently working, if you've been able to run the ball, I think you want to pick up fourth and inches. You need to be able to, especially right. with a guy like Richardson. Right. The fact that we just basically run that play and gotten stopped was like, man, you could run it again. I wouldn't kill you for that for sure. But I, I think I'm with you. And I I think I felt better about us punting for all the reasons you said. So yeah. one of those weird situations where it felt like you need to go off tendency here because of the elements of the game. And I think this was largely proven to be right from the standpoint of if your idea was it was going to take them a long time to score, yeah. that was true, right? They're kicking an onside kick with, you know, how much time is left in the game there? 40, 30 yeah, seconds. Yeah, onside- which is enough, right? Yeah. But, like, you, they didn't score If they got it, they would have. They have enough yeah. time. But yeah. the point is, like, you're kind of saying if they do score, they're just down to an onside kick. Yeah. It doesn't even matter if they have two timeouts left. They do get no shot at getting the ball back. And the odds of, you know, getting an onside kick in college football is like less than 5%. So if you factor that stuff in. The the odds go up if you actually kick it, though. I I did the math on that. (laughs) It's a good point. If the ball actually has a chance. So I think all in all, that's fine. But it's very nuanced. You can go either way. I think it depends on the scenario. If we had been converting a lot of third and ones, I'd have been like, that's that's ridiculous. We didn't go for it there and take two more minutes. But we hadn't been. The story of the game was that we were not doing that. So I think that that made sense. And, of course, it fit how they were coaching the game which was the classic Will Muschamp, uber-conservative. I really dislike that mentality, but at least your team was sort of expecting that there. You're not going to give them an unexpected, oh, no, we don't get it, what's happening. They're, they were already in that mindset. Okay, a few final thoughts. A fun question here from loyal listener Jeffrey Hoy. 
Do you think we win this game if Mullen is coaching? Like, let's say we don't fire him last week and we're intending on firing him this week. We just hadn't made the announcement. It's impossible to know, obviously. I think the answer to this question is either yes or no. It's yes if... <laughs> That's a great it's yes analysis if, there. <laughs> you like that? It's yes if Dan Mullen was able to get... Emory Jones to convert consistent easy passes to where he scores more than 24 points, which he had been unable to do against both South Carolina and Missouri and LSU for mm-hmm. that matter. Um, and if that doesn't happen, which had not been happening, you're going to lose. So does that happen? It's up to you. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, obviously there's a greater chance. This is going to sound crazy to think about this. I think there's a greater chance that we have, we lost the game with Mullen because I think personally my own thesis on Mullen proved to be true you and I had that that conversation about whether or not Dan Mullen was sort of resigned to losing his job or he was fighting to keep it I think he was out the door I think he was going to be loyal until the end which is what he did he chose to play Emory over a very clearly healthy Anthony Richardson which cost us more losses and I think he was going to do that in until the end end I think he was fine burn it to the ground I am who I am and you're not going to stop me he installed as his interim coach, Greg Knox, who has been with him since 2009, and who pulled off one of the most loyalist game plans I have ever seen. He comes out and says, I'm not going to change anything, which we talked about. He then plays Emory Jones to the point to where I think he finally was like, I don't care how loyal I am to Dan Mullen. I have clearly done all I can to serve him. I feel bad now. That I, Emory, I, I have to do it. I have to do it. And no one can fault me for thinking I wasn't good to you, Dan Mullen. Dan Mullen can't call me and say, I can't believe you turned your back on me. Look, man, it's 7-7. Seven to seven. Your guy threw three picks and almost threw a fourth. I couldn't do it anymore. I'm sorry. I, I did it way longer than anyone else in their right mind would have done it. Actually, and it's not good to let Emory Jones set the school record for interceptions in a game. No, it's not. Well, he could have all the records. Dan Mullen likes that. But I think in general, you know, when you look at all of that and how it went anyway, and then Florida was able to win because Richardson came in, you got to ask yourself, is there any scenario where Dan Mullen was going to put Richardson in? And I have to think the answer is almost certainly no. I think so. Barring an injury, and therefore you lose the game probably. I think so. And that's, I think, how far Dan Mullen had just lost his his way as a football coach. He made it about himself. He made it about his belief system. He made it about his loyalty and honor system, which he said until the bitter end, which you and I mentioned when he was getting rid of Grantham, I'm fine for the rest of my life, pretty much. He didn't say this, right? I'm, I'm speculating what he really meant. But basically, I'm fine if I'm going to be known as the loyal guy. That's who I am, which is basically saying I'm also fine being a loser, at the highest level because I don't really care about winning enough to get the best guys. I'd rather have my friends and my pals play quarterback and run the team and take losses, which is horrible stewardship. So I think Greg Knox went a step further than Mullen would have went. And that ultimately let us win the game. And somebody must have gotten thrown the headset and said, hey, you know what else we should do? Let's give Pierce a bunch of carries in a row, which also happened, right? Well, which Greg was great. Knox was distracted by coaching the team. Someone... Something happened. It was great. So, yeah, those two things had never happened in Dan Mullen's tenure, so it's hard to think they were going to happen then, and those things directly led to us winning. So good for the staff for actually pulling the trigger. Yeah, and I I would agree with you on a large part of that. I think if Mullen had been coaching this game, we would have not seen Richardson for some reason, and we'd probably go down. So, weirdly, not that Greg Knox is a better coach than Dan Mullen, but in that situation, maybe just enough 
Yeah, given everything that had happened, maybe that's what you needed. All right, there's a lot of discussion about the pros and cons of a sec- accepting a bowl bid. Now, obviously, Florida is now eligible for a bowl by winning this game. It's, it's funny that we were talking about that at a place like Florida. Um, do you have thoughts on what would you like them to accept a bowl bid? What are the pros and cons? You want me to outline the pros and cons a little yeah, bit? Yeah, for me, it's all pros. All pros. And I don't even like bowl games, but it's all pros for one simple reason and one simple reason only. All of the additional practice time. Totally. And so if you're Napier, although you are not going to coach Florida's bowl game, it's not going to happen. No coach ever does that. You are, and it depends on Louisiana. Like if they beat App State, he may want to also coach their bowl game. I think that Strickland is going to really seriously try very hard to make that not happen. That's really probably an impossibility. You can't coach your team in a bowl game that doesn't actually matter. Even if they beat App State and they might get a really nice bowl, it's still an exhibition game. You cannot do that to your new school. I think he wants to do it in his heart of hearts. I think he's not going to wind up doing it. So I think what I'm saying with that is you get a lot of extra practices where you basically are able to take the interim staff and have conversations, begin to direct some things from afar. You can start to have an influence, right? You can start to be present in that way. And you want every single one of those practices to see who of your current team is going to play hard, is going to recognize the opportunity in front of them, and who doesn't. Because that gives you a head start on roster eval. If you get some guy who's dogging it, and not trying hard in bull practices, you already know that guy's not good for your culture because he should know this is a brand new opportunity for him. So for me, that's all that matters. Whatever con you can come up with is not a con enough to lose all of those practices for these college kids who only get so many. Yeah, I think some of the thought was like it's a short, it's a small staff, shorthanded. They're, you know, can they get the team ready? Their guys are on their way out. Is it worth it? Is it better just to like hard reset? But I think everything you said is really true. So developmental, even if you were just running drills. Great. Do that. Yeah. These guys are together. They're organized. You could, hey, new staff, install these plays. See how they do with it. Right? You don't have to run them in the game. You know, whatever you want to do. Now, you're going to spend your time recruiting and creating a new staff and doing all the stuff you're going to do behind the scenes, the whole organizational structure. You're not going to be coaching towards the bowl game. But I think it's only real positives. And so looks like we're going to accept it. And that's the way the players and the coaching staff were talking about it. Uh, yeah, we want to go to this bowl. Um, so I'd be surprised if Florida didn't accept the bowl bid. Yeah, they should. Again, I think it's generally known as a huge loss to lose those bowl practices under any circumstance for the reasons you mentioned. Even if you just did technique, hey, we're going to spend the entire camp working on basics. Here's how you leverage someone on the offensive and defensive line. Here's how you shade inside outside leverage here. I mean, just just do that. That's great. That's awesome. That's going yeah, to you further don't have to your young players. Prepare for your specific opponent. Correct. That doesn't really matter. So you need those practices. So we need to accept the bull bid. I would be very disappointed if we didn't, despite the fact that I'll be the first to say I don't really care about bulls. I do care about the practices and developmental time. Well said. All right. With that, we come to our first live read of the day, the Cade Museum. I am on the board for the Cade. I love the Cade. Uh, it really is all about innovation. In Gainesville and beyond. In fact, a lot of you live in Florida don't know this, but Florida is a very innovative state. And Gainesville itself now is one of the leading innovative cities in the country. And along with that, the Cade Museum located here in Gainesville is a place that you can visit. It's not your traditional museum at all. Uh, Go check it out. A lot of cool stuff there. If for no other reason than to simply check out the Gatorade exhibit, it is really, really neat, giving you the history of how it was founded here by Dr. Cade. 
at the University of Florida and how it grew to become what it is now a global icon. You can use this promo code GATORNATION to get a buy one, get one free. You can go online to decaymuseum.org or you can visit at the desk and simply say the words Gator Nation and you will get buy one, get one free. And right on the heels of that is BetUS. Of course, it is still full swing in sports betting season with college football winding down, the NFL heating up, college basketball getting going, all sorts all sorts of things to bet on. It never really stops, does it, Alan? You can use the promo code GNATION125 or GNATION200. Either one of those will get you a nice fat sign-up bonus, more than doubling what you put in to give you a good start. Plus, if you use one of those codes, you are supporting the show as we will get a hundo bomb for each person that signs up which is pretty great as well. So visit betus.com and sign up today. Games we picked recap last week, Alan. You went a miserable 4 and 7, shame mm. on you, and I went a slightly less miserable 5 and 6. I'm barely holding on to above and 500 And you are 80 and 78 this year and I am 78 and 80. That's remarkable. It's really crazy when you think about how that works, but at any rate, thank you Texas for giving me this losing record. All right, let's walk through them. Old Miss in the Egg Bowl gets a convincing win over Mississippi State on the road. Lane Kiffin in the top 10 here finishing with Old Miss. What a phenomenal season from him. This is a really good win. This Mississippi State team is good. And they handled them. And this was a this was a good game. Um love the Egg Bowl. Love these two coaches. It was fun watching this on Thanksgiving night or whenever this was. Um, so really enjoyed it. And yeah, great win for Ole Miss. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really great, great season. You can't say enough about what Lane Kiffin has done there at Ole Miss. There are questions lingering recruiting, as we talked about falling behind where it should be. Perhaps a quote, generational talent where it gets thrown around too often nowadays in Matt Corral, but a yeah, talented guy, talented. Matt Corral, who maybe inflated your win total. Who knows? Either way, We'll see what Lane Kiffin does. Is he still at Ole Miss next year? We'll find out. UNC on the road against NC State. NC State does not cover. You and I thought, Alan, they would cover. They do get the win, though. A final two touchdowns scored in the last 22 seconds of yeah, this game. Apparently, this was a super wild game. I didn't watch any of it, but yeah, kooky, kooky finish. Penn State at Michigan State in the fighting Chester Kimbrels Exclamation point for Mel Tucker. Again, for those James Franklin fans out there, is this who you want at Florida? This is the kind of guy you want? Losing to an early upstart Michigan State who's far less talented. Either mm-hmm. way, great, great season after getting obliterated by Ohio State. You could have just mailed it in. They didn't. They get a big, big win there. For sure. That's a good win for them. And Penn State, man, I guess enjoy the James Franklin era. I mean, they could pull out of this. We just saw you know, one of the teams we're going to talk about soon, Michigan, do that. But, man, weird. Number 15, Wisconsin, gets beat by Minnesota. A huge Mm. win for P.J. Fleck. Wisconsin was trending up. You and I did not believe we could trust Minnesota. Minnesota comes in with a convincing win. I'm not surprised Minnesota won. But this is tough for Wisconsin. You know, this knocks them out of the Big Ten title game. All of a sudden, Iowa is in there now. So, yeah, great result for Minnesota for sure. No doubt. Texas A&M. Oh, man. And this is the head scratcher of the week, right? At LSU. Look, hats off to my guy. All of you guys who trolled me for saying I put Edo above Dan Mullen, what do you want from me? He pulls another rabbit out of his hat. His sign-off game is a win against Jimbo Fisher. Rides off into the sunset. He's a national championship winning coach. He beats Dan Mullen. He almost beats Alabama. He beats Jimbo Fisher. 
How bad of a loss is this for Jimbo? It's crazy when you talk about those wins that he has, and they they still did finish like 500. Oh, horrible. Horrible right? season. But Jimbo, I don't know, man. They're, they've not been impressive this year, and that could be due to that. If you take away that Alabama win, which, you know, to be fair, that's a significant accomplishment. Yeah, don't take it away. But if you did. it's You're supremely disappointed this season. You have a quarterback issue to fall back on. You're sure. your starter, but for things sure. never really felt right for them. And they're recruiting at a high level, though. Very that that's that's always the icing on the cake, right? Is you're like, hey, you know what? Jimbo struggled this year. Last year he was in the playoff. This year he struggles, but look at the recruiting. Well, not in the playoff. Not in the playoff, but right there, right the bubble. But you're like, you know what? Though, if you're recruiting the top four, that is the pain reliever you need to a season like this one, for sure. And I think next year, if they have another, that's the big thing. If he sees it, it's going to be like, well, this is going to be a long contract. Right. Well, then it's Tom Herman, right, where you have top four classes and you're not winning, which would be surprising for a guy of Jimbo Fisher's level. That's unlikely. But it also, how much of this, Allen, is just the reality of what the SEC West mm-hmm. is nowadays? Well said. No one else plays in any kind of conference or division even remotely like that. I mean, so Jimbo wins eight games, but tell me he's not winning 10 games with his eyes closed in every other conference. I think you're right. So that's tough. All right, Clemson. Beat South Carolina like a drum. You and I were not buying South Carolina at this stage versus Clemson, who we were buying. Clemson does what you expect a good coaching staff to do. I think all the people that were already questioning whether Dabo got lucky. I don't even know how you can say that. Mm -hmm. All those years of success. Clearly, he didn't. They righted the ship. I think Clemson now will enter into this next season with momentum again. They sort of had a blip on the radar. They would like to forget. uh, But they crush Beamer in South Carolina. Yeah, they needed to win this game. This would have been a bad look for them to lose. South Carolina, I think, would have liked to have been in this game, right? That would just playing Clemson close here, I think, and covering the spread would I think would have helped their momentum. But yeah, not not the greatest way to end the season getting shut out. No, Kentucky on the road against Louisville. Kentucky smokes Louisville. Mm. Uh, you had picked Louisville. Shame on you. But Kentucky gets it done here, crushing way the wrong. ACC. Way wrong. Sorry about that. Alabama and Auburn. This broke my heart. Wow. I watched this game, and all I do is ever think about Chris Musgrove because he's such a great guy and a huge Auburn fan, co-hosted this show one time with me. But that was one of the more excruciating losses that I have watched in a long, long time. I mean, Auburn had that game every possible way you could have a football game, only to lose in that soul-crushing fashion. Man. Yikes. And a rivalry game like that, I mean, this will stick with you for a while. And they could have ended it in that overtime where they should have gone for two. They obviously had a play they liked because they ran it during their two-point conversion derby fest portion of the game. But yeah, to shut out Alabama for three quarters and then to lose is a heartbreaker. It's brutal. It's just brutal because, again, you dissect the last 10 minutes of that game, and there were so many ways they could win. But credit Bryce Young on the road, mm-hmm. super hostile environment, the whole world watching you, and that drive is one Alabama fans will remember forever. And, again, at his age and stage, that's some tremendous maturity to lead that drive. Oregon State sadly loses to Oregon. Oregon with a pretty surprisingly good result here, getting the win 38-29. Yeah, I don't hate our pick here. They were They're close to covering this game obviously, but good win for Oregon. I mean, they needed it. Yes, they did. All right. The now Lincoln Riley-less Oklahoma gets beat by my boy, 
and your boy, but really my boy, Mike Gundy at Oklahoma State. I mean, again, we talked about him. He's just, how is Mike Gundy not in the coaching conversations? Because I don't think he ever wants to leave. And good for him. But they get to win 37-33, sending Lincoln Riley packing. Man, they're salty on defense, too, um, for Oklahoma State. And they held Oklahoma for a lot of this game. You know, this is a great win, man. They do not beat Oklahoma very often. They got to feel great about this. And they, you know what? I think they're going to be in the playoff. Ooh, there it is. There it is. Crazy. You heard it there first. Well, that'd be awesome. First, I feel but... so good for Mike Gundy about that because, again, he's a guy who pretty much only gets double-digit wins, and you kind of forget about him. There's there's a guy, by the way. There's a proven experience coach. I guess we should have named him. Yeah. If that's you know, the category where you said it's a proven experience guy that would be interesting at a school like Florida, if you wanted to get into the, like, I can only hire a Power 5 guy, he'd be at the top of your Power you're 5 right. list. And we've left him out of several conversations because he's just been there for so long. He just doesn't seem to – again, if you never hear a guy's name in the coaching circle realm, it's typically because the agents are just like, nope, nope, not leaving, nope, nope, Well, nope. because he had flirted. He got so many contract extensions and raises by flirting with anybody and everybody for so long. Yep. Yep. That, it seems I don't like know. he's steady. Either way, Ohio State, this is a shocker. Wow. I had a big parlay riding on this game wow. that I would have hit, and these jokers got me. Michigan went old school Jim Harbaugh on them, Alan. It looked like he turned back the clock to his Stanford days. He had two and three tight ends in there frequently. He rushed for almost 300 yards. He basically told them, I'm going to run the ball, and you know I'm going to run the ball, and you can't stop me. This was everything Jim Harbaugh said he was going to be at Michigan when he was full of bravado and swagger. He was going to out-physical. He was going to dominate you. And all these years later, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, with a team that Vegas did not think was going to be good this year, with the team that most people thought was not going to be good this year, just beats Ohio State like a drum, just took their will, took their soul from them. They basically just stopped playing defense towards the end, despite it being a close contest. They basically just quit. That was an unbelievable display of power football. I mean, I, I'm i shocked. I knew there's a chance that Michigan play, could play them well, but you would not imagine them dominating from the beginning, really. That they were the better team out there, and this is everything Michigan's been wanting. They haven't beat Ohio State in forever, literally forever. I, and dominated on and off the field. And you want Michigan to be good. I like when Michigan's good. Oh yeah, it's good for football. Yeah, Michigan's and good. wow, I mean, what a cathartic victory that was. I think you saw it in the stadium with the fans and everything. But to win in that fashion, where you just bludgeon them, has got to be. So awesome. And I, the Harbaugh thing is wild. We're going to talk about him in a minute. But, man, it's unprecedented, really. It's kind of crazy. And, I mean, another team it's, you know, knocking on the door of the playoff here. Knocky, knocky, knocky. But, yeah, great win. Nice to see that and just sort of the stress relief on his face. And first nice data point, Alan, for a restructured incentive-based contract. I like we talked it. about it. Yeah. We liked it. We liked it's it. good for college football that this happened. I yeah. Think. And we like that. You know, as much as I talk about the three-year test a lot, obviously, I'm a huge proponent of if you have a guy, and Harbaugh's a really interesting guy. We're going to dive into him, obviously, in a minute. You know, doing something like that makes a lot more sense than locking up guaranteed money, bigger buyouts, whatever. All right. Kansas State, oh. the obligatory pick, Texas. You and I both picked Kansas State. And as Texas would, fittingly, they win 22-17. They end my season with a loss. Thank you, Texas, you jokers. Good for them. Uh, my fatal error of joining you on this pick, I think. But I was on fire. I had two in a row. 
but not three in a row. They said, no. shut me down. All right, Daytona Steve. Oh, man. Rough year for Daytona Steve. I saw him over the weekend, and he's having a hard time with it. He's 0-16 now on his parlays. He loses his lock of Ohio State and Michigan, which, again, as we said, the guy goes all in. You got to give him credit. We mentioned, hey, maybe you want to diversify these locks outside of your, your three-gamer and parlay. Not so, he says. He is Daytona Steve. He rolls the dice, and he pays the price. SEC right. round of balance. Yeah, Mizzou, Arkansas. Arkansas wins 34-17. Sam Pittman, another person, not a coordinator. Yeah, offensive so, line coach. Arkansas is feeling good. Arkansas is, again, you know what? Sam Pittman, people said this, was a great brand fit at Arkansas. And don't right. underestimate that. You That's have great. to fit there. He's the right kind of guy for the players Arkansas can recruit. And remarkable turnaround. And again, for all of you out there who think rebuilding, rebuilding, rebuilding takes so long to get back to being good, the reality is it doesn't. Even at a school like Arkansas, which is totally in the dumpster, he's almost overnight turned them around, and now they are a competent, respectable, ranked program. That's fun for them. UGA smacks Georgia Tech 45-0. Nothing to see here, really, except for Georgia Tech then fires like half their staff. So Jeff Collins still has his work cut out for him there. Yeah, Jeff Collins is a guy who's a great defensive coordinator, but we mentioned when he took that job. I can't imagine if I was an up-and-coming coach, that's a job I would never take. I'm not taking Georgia Tech. There's know, no man. way. The school's too good. It's too, it's too difficult. Georgia takes all of your best players. I don't know. They've only ever been good when they've run things that are bizarre. They've never lined up soundly in the modern era and been good. Yeah, it still has some intriguing because you're so close to that talent base. But I don't know. It's too hard of a school. You're probably right. That's the problem. All right, a few notes from games here. The Apple Cup, Washington State fans stormed the field. Wazoo wins 40-13. I mean, what a wild season from Washington State. Unbelievable. A coachless team, basically. Yeah, and then they hire the guy who's the interim, which I don't hate for them. But. Which is crazy when you think of, we have, we're not going to dive into the COVID stuff, yeah. but it's really wild to think that a guy who is having on-field success, you spend your whole life getting to this level, and he's out, and now guys that are working underneath him are in. Really, truly remarkable stuff. But, yeah, what if what a finish to the year there. Okay. We said we're not going to do a big high, a big search for defensive coordinators, but a couple of guys who have been rumored to be like on the hot board for Billy Napier have no idea whether it's true. Yeah, right. Who like comes up with this? Like is someone like eavesdropping? Like how do you know? Who knows? Yeah. But either way, we're going to run with it. Doug Belk, who was a guy I always started to look at as a DC hire, and Jim Knowles, another guy on my short list when we were about to have that discussion. Doug Belk at Houston, Jim Knowles at Oklahoma State, two guys who have done really well this year. Um, a little bit different profile, but very successful defensive coordinators. Thoughts on either of them? Yeah, I've done some research, just some hard number research here to kind of get us going. As things develop in the future, of course, we'll give you more and more of a breakdown. But obviously, right at the bat, right, Jim Knowles, older guy, mid-50s. It's not old, but older. Doug Belk, very young. Yeah. Right, Doug Belk is like 30. So you have a two contrasting age scenarios. But what's funny is that both of them wind up with defenses that are pretty similar. They both play a lot of man, which I love. They play more than a third of their defense in man. They're both truly multiple. And you don't always see this, Alan. We covered this a lot. I obviously look at this every game we play. They all run cover two, three, and four. So they are not a base three or base four team. A lot of teams will kind of major in one or the other. They are not. They are truly multiple. They will also run a plethora of DB sets, dime, nickel, base, whatever the case may be. So they really are very tactical with how they play defense. I like that. That's the modern way to play defense. 
They both pressure a decent amount of time. Noel's pressuring a little bit more. About a fifth of the time he's going to bring pressure. He's going to bring a fifth guy. Essentially, if you break down the numbers, Oklahoma State against the Power Five has been stupidly good, Mm -hmm. given that they do not have that kind of talent. They don't have the same talent on defense other teams do. But if you look at their ranking, and one of the best ways to do it, in my opinion, is to take the opposing team's QBR. I want to see pass defense. You can look at total yards and other stuff, but the opposing team's QBR is a nice picture of how well you're doing at stopping teams passing the football. I think nowadays you have to stop teams from passing the football to truly win anything. So for me, here's some rankings for you. Oklahoma State is number 13. Houston is number 8. But Houston has far weaker competition. If you if you have Houston just be the Power 5, where they only play a couple of games where teams are much more talented than them, they drop pretty far on the list. But... Pretty similar if you look at it that way. But their talent level is lower too. Correct. That's why it's hard to equate. Bottom line is both of them are in the upper echelon. Uh, Cincinnati, by the way, is number one in that category. Cincinnati's defense is so good, Alan. They're number one in all the FBS, and they're also number one if you just sort for power five. So Cincy, and even if you go look against their, their teams they play against good comp, like the best comp, extremely good. And I think you've seen already the Luke Fickle coaching tree has spawned Marcus Freeman, our number one target for D.C. when we did not fire Grantham. Notre Dame is number nine this year, passing QBR. They've gotten better and better every single game, and not surprisingly, UGA, number two. A lot of good company there, but the reason people are really high on Knowles, he's very smart, Cornell grad, played defensive line there, worked in finance for a while as an analyst, got into coaching. He's a sharp-minded guy. He's a great guy. People love him. His players love him. He's very, very tactical, which again, I love. You've heard me hate on static systems, old school football. He's the total opposite of that. And I love it. Right. And I think normally the fear of hiring a guy who's in his fifties is that you're kind of maybe going to get a Grantham repeat guy who's stuck in his ways, right? Younger doesn't mean better. But if the game, if you're looking for the next evolution, if you're in a stage where football is changing, you'd rather go with the younger guy. But his backstory kind of crosses that narrative a little bit. So it makes him more intriguing to me because he hasn't been in the coaching his entire time. So I don't know. Well, both guys to consider. I don't have real strong opinions on either one of them. Yeah, that's, that's the key. I think we stay away from really trying to hammer out the coordinator level because from our view, I can start pulling up all sorts of stats, which is, by the way, a great way to do it. You know, Take right. a look at QBR, take a look at like average yards per play, take a look at what they run. But mainly I gave you what I want to see as a starting conversational piece. I want to see multiple. They're both multiple. I want to see a lot of man, definitely more than 20%, which they do. Uh, and then on top of that, you want to see a good, consistent QBR ranking throughout more than just one year, which both of them have. Also, both of their defenses have trended up. They've gotten better every single year they've been there. So they are two good candidates, which tells you, okay, if those are rumored guys, it also tells you Napier is looking at something beyond just a buddy or something else. And those are two very different guys, age-wise, profile-wise. He's looking at on-field results and what he's hearing about coaches. That's a good sign. And the other thing we don't know is... What are these guys like? Are they good recruiters? Of course. There's a million other yeah. things that go into it. But just as a profile of how they run defense, I like the, the what he's looking at there. All right. We're going to – it's a very newsy part of the year. We're going to spend a little bit of time here. Lincoln Riley, we've talked about this already a bunch, goes to USC. This is wild. There's almost no precedent for this. This was not rumored. But when you stop to think about it, 
it makes a ton of sense. Are you ready to slam him for avoiding SEC conversation? This is your first take. Well, I, this is a hot take. No, the, the hot take is that I, I definitely think he clearly didn't want to compete in the SEC. The bigger takeaway is, is that wise? Well, I don't know. I don't know that you can say that. You don't think so? Well, certainly that is a interpretation of his actions, but I don't know that, that that's obvious. Um, you don't think so? If we use Occam's razor that the most, you know, the simplest explanation is the correct one. He turns down both Oklahoma and LSU well, to go to USC. He's also a person and not just a football coach. Okay, that's fine. And maybe he wants to live in Los Angeles. But Los there's Angeles, been no mention of that. The rumor mill okay. is that he was not happy with Oklahoma for moving to the SEC. Now, we can't know if any of these things are true. Right. But Lincoln heard, Riley has never spent more than a minute. He's maybe a minute recruiting someone. He's not frequently ever in California. He doesn't own a home there. He's not vacationing there. He has no friends there. He has no family there. He does recruit there. But like... I don't know. So I just don't want to like malign his character i'm not maligning his character i think the real question is is it a wise decision i think it very well could be but that's if you want to call at. him yella well i think you know, i think that's but that's that also could fun. be wise that's well, what, okay look pick your battles is the right. phrase right so, sure so there is something like amazing about saying i will enter into any arena anytime and fight anyone but there's something wise about saying i'm gonna cherry pick my fights and if i don't have to fight 10 giants i don't have to fight two I might win more often. Agree. I, so on that merit, I think, honestly, I don't hate it for him. So the Oklahoma is tough. Now, they've carved out a really kind of miraculous place in college football. They've been one of the most consistent through college football history, right there with Ohio State. Almost no downturn. And they've always been really, 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 really good. And... But they don't sit in a natural recruiting footprint other than recruiting Texas, right? And it's about to be a bloodbath in the SEC. And so if USC, which has all the resources that you would want, the be- like one of the best recruiting footprints, right, tradition, all these things now, they have some infrastructure questions, things like that. But you got a new AD who seems like a very sharp guy from coming from Cincinnati. I don't know. I if we're not going to put it into the category of like, man, he's wussing out. I really like it for him. And maybe, you know, like I said, he is a real person who has family, who has other things to think about that. If he wants to go live in LA after living in Norman, Oklahoma for a long time, who am I to say that that's a bad choice? He could that, that I mean, we're speculating across the board. It right. seems, it seems pretty unlikely that a football coach makes that decision based solely upon geography. Well, not solely, even but even if it, his wife or family is influencing him, I mean, that would be not impossible, but either way, let's let's put it this way. Let's get to the core of the matter. Do you think it's more likely that Lincoln Riley gets to the playoff at USC than he would at Oklahoma each year, percentage-wise? In the four-teamer? Once he starts. No, let's go to the 12-teamer. Let's keep it. What it's, it's, it's a, he's looking into the future. That's what he right. did, right? He looked into the future, and he said, SEC is coming. It's not right now. It's coming. This is a chance to go to USC. You have to know he's evaluating. He's a very young guy. He's a tactical guy. He's a quarterback guy. California's loaded with top quarterbacks. Southern Cal is known for that, right? So what do you think his odds are of making the playoff once we're fully into 2025 and we've got, you know, whatever we have, 12-team playoff? I mean, I think it's going to be like 
if if they do what I think they're going to do there, they're going to be in the playoff almost every year. Almost a guarantee every single year. Almost a guarantee. Like it'd be crazy for them not to make it. All right, at Oklahoma, it gets way dicey. No chance. There's no way. I mean, only Nick Saban can sustain that kind of success in the SEC. I would think they would probably be in the playoff, even if they port their current success over probably like once every three years. I agreed. So you are still very successful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But you're shooting yourself up into legendary. I'm in the playoff every year status, right? Okay. Now the question is, this is the big question. This is what matters. Mm -hmm. Do you think the chances of winning a national title are better at Oklahoma for him or USC? And this is going to lend into the argument of is playing better competition consistently going to make you more battle tested? Or is there some wisdom into picking your battles? I think it's negligible because you're still in a, the Pac-12 is good enough. I think that if Oregon is good, if some other teams are good, then you'll have enough wins under your belt. That I think it doesn't really matter. I mean, it, it, it would be better in the SEC, but, but you're going to come out probably healthier and fresher too. I think that you want to pick your battles. So I'm the number one proponent of competition, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is in college football, what you just said is true. No matter how good your team is, you have too much youth. These kids get too young too fast. It's not the NFL where you've got a too deep of really talented, you know, solid guys where even then if they get injured, they're not as great, right? But if you have to start playing your 18-year-olds at the end of the season because you've lost too many guys because the SEC is the NFL every single week, but kids are not taking care of their bodies like NFL players do, et cetera, whatever, then you get to the playoffs and yeah, sure, your team has faced everyone. You can't face anyone better. There's a benefit to that toughness that you have. But if you're USC, why don't you just go schedule one non-conference game against a really good team each year? You beat every other team in the Pac-12 with your eyes literally closed outside of Oregon and maybe one other upstart each year. So you're guaranteed to win nine or 10 games. You play one really tough game and you gear up and you get yourself ready. I don't know that that leads to any less success. And on top of that, in a world where making the playoff every year certainly helps your brand, right? And you're in California, one of the richest recruiting areas. Seems like he has a higher expected value of winning a championship. So to me, I'm an EV guy. We talk about it all the time, right? I don't like it as like a college football traditionalist. I don't like leaving the school that gave you everything you had where you can win a title. I don't like it that you're going to the SEC and you've kind of made it known you don't like that. I don't like any of those things. It doesn't feel like what you would want a champion to feel like the champion enters here and says, I will beat anyone at any time. I'm a champion. I'm not saying he's running away from it, Alan, but I am saying, I think that decision went on. And I think he looked at that USC opportunity and thought, this is too good to pass up. I already recruit California really well, which he does. I'm going to go there. I'm going to be unchallenged, unquestioned. I will be Pete Carroll. I will win every single year. And perhaps I'll have a team good enough every so often to compete with whoever comes out of the SEC, which is going to be, as you mentioned, a complete and utter bloodbath. I also happen to think, Alan, in my own naive view, we're not that far away from whatever the super conference is. Because, and you can already create this kind of drumbeat right now in the background. If you're going to have Oklahoma, Texas, A&M, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, etc., all in one conference... How loud does that drumbeat get when those teams have two or three losses and teams like USC go through with one loss beating a bunch of jokers that would never survive in the SEC before you get something different? So either way, there's too many unknowns, but I think that Lincoln Riley made this decision 
based upon a higher EV and these numbers I'm about to read you, which I think factored in a lot less. It's rumored that USC is going to pay him $110 million. They're going to wind up buying him a house, buying his other house, and giving him unlimited private jet use for his family. These are rumors, but these are insane things. Just upping the ante of what they will pay to win. I mean, remarkable stuff, right? So you kind of get the whole entire world available to you. You get an easier place to win. You get the same expectations that you had anyway at Oklahoma. It seems like on paper, if you want to win, maybe the better decision. But it also sort of is a direct slap in the face of traditional college football where you don't leave a school like Oklahoma. And I think Oklahoma fans are dealing with the aftermath of that feeling. Imagine Florida had a guy leave Florida. Urban, you know, health himself out of Florida. But what if Urban left to go to Ohio State? Even though he was from there, it still would have struck every Florida fan as complete heresy. Yeah. So it's really fascinating. It's shocking news. It's an incredible job by USC to get him to recognize there was a wrinkle there. It's also, I think, really good for college football because college football is so much better when USC is good. There's a huge black hole in the West Coast when there's not a great team out there, and now there will be one. And if Oregon stays good, you actually have a complete country of good football again, which is great for the sport. So I'm in favor of it. A lot to unpack. We'll probably never know the full truth behind it, but shocking, shocking stuff. I mean, for him, I love it. It's You just outlined it very well. It's the best possible scenario for him. I don't think there's any downside. Other than people can go to him and say, Hey, you wussed out. Yeah. You can also you say you want to compete. You left. Also, like, you know, count my millions or whatever, you know. He did give his all to Oklahoma when he was there. For it's sure. The, you know, you don't want to have the sour take if you're an Oklahoma fan. He gave his all. He never quit on you. He didn't quit in the middle of the season to try to go to leave USC, right? I mean, he gave you everything he had when he was there. He did make a choice that's going to frustrate you. But wild stuff either way. And that leaves us with LSU. Hmm. What? How do you feel if you're an LSU fan right now? I well, mean, we're not on Twitter currently, so maybe they've announced somebody. Who knows, right? I mean, there's rumors, I'm sure. I mean, Kiffin posted a photo with a Louisiana license plate, <laughs> which who knows what that means from Lane Kiffin. It's If he's not going there, it's super trolly. And that, well, he puts himself in the conversation. The yeah. Vegas odds today have put him now as the favorite for the LSU job, despite LSU sort of saying, we're not going to look at Lane Kiffin. They've put him at the favorite now. I mean, who else are you going to hire at this point? Well, here you go. I just I just pulled up Twitter right now on purpose because you were humoring me. And you know what the latest rumor is? LSU is now targeting Brian Kelly. Well, there you go. I'll tell you the real thing, though, Alan. If you're LSU, does it not just make unbelievable sense to take Lane Kiffin at this point in time? I think you have to. I mean, to me, it makes so much. He's so scary there. Oh, he's so terrifying. scary there. And he's a wild card, but you've put yourself in wild card land because Luke Fickle's not going to LSU. I think it's it doesn't seem like that he is. He's a layup to take somewhere. He's not going there. Take the highest ceiling guy available who's lived in the SEC, who's right next to you. Like, what? With that much talent offensively, it seems like a layup. We'll see what they do, but they put themselves in a position where their quote-unquote safety school, Florida just came in and took that guy. And so they might regret that for a long time. Now, maybe they go out and hire somebody really great. If they pull Brian Kelly or Lane Kiffin, they probably feel fine about it. Yeah, I'd feel fine about either one of those. For for sure. But if not, 
We'll see. We'll see. I, you know, I don't want to real him, fast but, here. That's the yeah. thing is if you're an LSU fan, you're feeling the pressure. If Lane doesn't go and let's say Brian Kelly or someone of that stature doesn't go, then you're starting to say there's no fickle. If you're looking at Matt Campbell, who we've covered, a guy we said, hey, we don't, not a fit for us. You know, I know you love him, but not great for the South. A lot of question marks. Certainly not sexy. Not sexy at all. They want a sexy name. I don't know. Things are getting wild, though. This mm-hmm. is a wild coaching character. You start making right some real long shot calls to. Yeah. Real power. And now we have Oklahoma. Who was Oklahoma going after? Report, since we're sitting here recording the show, is that Brett Venables might finally be leaving Clemson. I mean, that... That makes the most sense. That's not a bad hire. And that's a a great hire. And again, this is why Oklahoma does well, though, right? They have a culture where people go, I mean, Bob Stoops. What do you think of Bob Stoops coaching the bowl game? I love it. That's incredible. That's why I wanted Spur to coach. I know. How awesome is that? Dude, have Spurrier come coach the bowl game. But Oklahoma does a great job with their culture. I think that's what you see there, Mm -hmm. right? Like the fact that Bob Soups immediately comes out and says, of course, I will do this for Oklahoma. That's unbelievable. Like most college programs can't get anyone to be loyal to them for five seconds. So yeah, Venables gets hired. It's another great hire. I mean, maybe he's not going to be Lincoln Riley. It's a totally different mindset and shift. But again, like it's, it's, there's no McIlwain in there. There's no Zook in there. You know, they don't have those kind of guys. There you go. Either way, just wild stuff. I and mean, this has been crazy. This coaching carousel to have Oklahoma, USC, LSU, and Florida in one season hire coaches, Alan. And maybe Notre Dame. And, but, and yeah, right? But I mean, that's, that's unreal. Unreal. That's great. Okay, a couple of little transfer nodal no, notices. I don't know what word I'm trying to say there. <laughs> so defensive lineman for UF, Dante Xanders, formerly Lang. Tight end turned defensive lineman. Um, announced he's hitting the portal. Gerald Mincy, offensive lineman, who is one of our top reserves. You know, neither guy plays a lot, but of the two, Mincy, I feel like, is the one who's like, uh, he's probably going to be a starter next year. Yeah. Or at I least right there. For sure. I mean, Dante Xanders, I think, has been a nice player for UF. Yeah, but just a doesn't hurt. So this guy. is going to happen, right? Guys are going to transfer. Now, this is weird that it's on the front end. You'd think they'd want to, like, talk to the new coach and say, hey, where do you – let me hear from you. I'm thinking about this. Or maybe they did already. I don't know. Uh, Much-traveled TCU running back Zach Evans hits the transfer portal and Jameer Gibbs, who was Tyler Remery's favorite guy a couple cycles ago, are both in the portal. So, not that you have necessarily – needs of no, running back these names se, but these names will carry on this on. is this is the new era right you have to get in there and find the guys you like and spencer rattler hits the portal which of course he would but right. would he because now potentially you would think that caleb's gonna follow lincoln riley to usc maybe and, i mean this is a very spencer rattler like move like screw oklahoma they screwed me over I'm yeah well I, I would think i mean he if riley had stayed he's of course gone oh but. well for sure but I think he also just burns bridges. That's what he does. And well, so he's not going to be endeared to the Sure, Oklahoma maybe he's talked base. to Caleb, and Caleb's like, I'm not going anywhere. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going. Then. Maybe so. Seems really unlikely, though, Caleb would not go to USC. Maybe so. But this you never is, know. That's yeah. going to be really, really, again, with the, that's what's crazy with the transfer rule. Like, yeah. who's to say that Oklahoma's not going to have 10 guys transfer to USC? 15, 20. Man, I mean, that's it tough. could happen. That's tough. It's it's nuts. Okay, James, we got a couple questions. About your boy, Jumbo Jimbo Fisher, who's now completed three seasons, right? At Texas A&M, this is yeah. correct. Yeah, he's yeah he's passed. Mm-hmm. Yes, correct. So, has he just failed? 
So now, again, like what's the analysis? We don't have a lot of long-term data on this, right? Once you've passed your three-year test, and then if you switch jobs, are you put to a new three-year test, right? What, what, what is your thought on that? No, and that's why we have this here. So some of the questions were, hey, does Jimbo Fisher, like, does he basically fail the three-year test now? Is he, is he kind of reset? And the, the answer to that question is no. I think the, the original thought is if you passed your three-year test at a school that's one coach away before, and this is weird to even have this kind of conversation, right? Essentially, you give them you give them a longer leash, right? And this is your, you know, this is for him, I think, this is your four day, and if I think I'm correct here, 2018, 19, 20, 21. But right. um, either yeah, way, four years. yeah, either way, point is like, you give them a longer leash. And I think what you're looking for is what we kind of alluded to earlier, right? Okay, this guy can win a national title because he's done it before. And now, unlike Mac Brown, who's clearly a different coach at this stage of his life, that's what you look for. Is he the same? If he's not the same, I'm going to reapply a three-year test. If he's still the same, which I would argue Jimbo Fisher still is, then look at the peripherals. Okay, how is he recruiting? Top five. Check. Looks good. Um, were there reasons why this season was a struggle? Lost a starting quarterback. Check. Okay, looks good. And I think you kind of you, you give that tenor. Mm-hmm. Whereas if Jimbo Fisher was a brand new coach at AM and didn't make it through that three-year test, you probably have different thoughts about what's going on. And I think that's entirely reasonable. That is the point of the three-year test. Um, but no, you don't reset it. So like Lincoln Riley now is not going to get a reset on his three-year test at USC. But I also imagine the worst case scenario for Lincoln Riley is not as bad as what's happening to Jimbo Fisher because Jimbo Fisher is in the SEC West and Lincoln Riley is not, right? So you create a baseline for Lincoln where he said, okay, well, if he's there for three years and doesn't make the playoff, that's probably a serious failure given that he's in the Pac-12. Something has probably gone wrong, but maybe if he's recruiting at a top five level and he's narrowly missed out, we'll have a longer leash. So I think that's the point of the three-year test is how long do I keep my coach past three years? I don't think anybody at A&M is thinking I'd like to change Jimbo out right now. And again, the recruiting is only trending up and up and up. So therefore you feel fine. Now, Harbaugh is the one we should talk about. Right. Right. Because he's the one that I wanted the worst when we weren't going to be able to get him. Michigan got him. (laughs) Right. I was like, man, I love Jim Harbaugh. He was my guy. Uh, He beats Ohio State. We're going to start it with this. He beats Ohio State. and He's been sitting on this. You just know for how long. And they ask him afterwards, hey, Ohio State said a lot of particularly nasty things about Michigan, which they really have, right? They've been super trolly. You're never going to beat us, you know, everything you can imagine. And he's like, well, I'm going to take the humble road. I'm not going to say anything about them, which is nice of him to say that. He's like, but sometimes people stand on third base and think they hit a triple, which is just an all-time great old school quote. And he's obviously referring to Ryan Day. Day. Yeah. And so Harbaugh's accomplishing two things here. One, he's giving some credit to Urban Meyer for being a phenomenal college football coach. And he's taking all the credit away from Ryan Day, who essentially is caretaking or babysitting something he didn't build. He's calling him Larry Coker, essentially. He is calling him Larry Coker. Only not as good as Larry Coker because Ryan Day hasn't won anything. Right? So really interesting stuff there. I love, I love it. how he says, I'm going to take the high road and then immediately does And then does he not. gives him like a, like a, I'm not going to tell you who I'm saying this about, but I mean, I love it though. I love it. Like you need, again, you need this in these rivalries, right? I love it. So Harbaugh now, he failed his three-year test in Michigan, which we talked about. He's been there for a longer time. We love the kind of re-contract jiggering. So what does this mean? Well, if he were to go win a national championship this year, he would then be the anomaly in the modern era 
for the three-year test. It could happen. Of course, guys like Mark D'Antoni made the playoff. He did not wind up winning. He lost, you know, 38-0. Michigan, though, if he were to win it all, he'd be the first person outside of Mac Brown who did it at Texas. Now, Mac Brown inherited a Texas program that was really oddly pretty bad in the mid-90s. He won nine games three years in a row. There was no playoff. He didn't finish in the top four. He was just outside of it. And then he kept then he just kept getting better. 10 wins, 11 wins, 12 wins, 13 and 0, right? So of course you wouldn't have fired him. Again, the important thing for the three-year test is the second you see like a, a downward trend or turmoil with a failed three-year test coach, you pull the trigger and say, I'm not going to hang around for this. With Harbaugh, you had that last year. The yeah. wheels fell off the program, right? They fell off the program. But you had mentioned this better than anyone else did. What do you do during a COVID year? We have no precedent for that. What does it mean? What do we do? Are we more lenient than a normal year, right? And I think Michigan's answer was, yes, but we're going to restructure your contract, which I think was a really smart thing to do. Look, Harbaugh's been in Super Bowls. He's an infectious guy. He was a great recruiter. Everything had been slipping. He seems he seems really committed to winning at Michigan, something he hadn't been before. He was bouncing around places. I liked the idea of giving him a little bit longer leash there. You have to be tactical with it. And they've paid off handsomely this year. Nobody saw this coming. But just to reiterate, a f- the anomaly to the three-year test is somebody has to win a national title. Making a playoff does not void it. Winning the Big Ten does not void it. You can do all those things. You're still not winning a national title. The rule is unless you pass that three-year test, you've never won a national title. There will be an exception at some point in time. Harbaugh is going to try to be it this year. And yeah, and I think that again, the you know, humans are weird and they do go through different cycles. And Michigan, I think, was smart because he is from Michigan. I think like there's some utility to that that like, he's likely to stay if he he's motivated to stay there, even if things go as well as possible. And not that they're vindicated, because he could the team could be like, you know, terrible next year or something, right? So obviously he's shown that the wheels can come off there. Um, but yeah, I, I liked every step that Michigan has taken recently. Doesn't mean it's ultimately going to work out in the long term, but this is really good process. I think from what they've gone through, I think it's great. And again, I like what Michigan did with it. I also think, you know, there's merit to have Harbaugh's a tweener. I'm going to call him a tweener. How many coaches have gone to the Super Bowl? Not many. Mm-hmm. How many have had a really excellent baseline test, right? Not many. How many have had some good seasons at the school they're at? Okay, not many. So if you look at his, his resume in totality, there's reason to say, I need to be really cognizant of the fact that no one's ever done this. But if you wanted to build a case for an anomaly, how surprising would it be to you if Jim Harbaugh was the first coach to do that? It, it wouldn't be. like He's a guy that you would think, yeah, it would make sense that that kind of guy figured it out right? At a place like Michigan. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's the point of the three-year test. It's a significant data point that forces you to come to face the reality when something's happening, like what's happening with Dan Mullen, it forces you to put your face in it and say, you know what? I can't give this guy 600 benefits of the doubt. And I think with Harbaugh, they did it right. Look, if you don't turn this around, no matter how great you've been, there's too many data points indicate we just can't continue. It's a nice middle ground. So yeah. Good for them. Yeah, good for them. But again, we'll keep an eye on it. But he could be. Stay tuned. If he wins it all, he will be 
the three-year test anomaly so far. There's going to be one at some point in time. General guidelines and principles are not going to hold 100% true in these cases. I'm pulling for them. Me too. Why not? Especially with that great comment about yeah, third base. Yeah, come on, let's be, I think they might be the only team. I think they could be Georgia as well. Maybe. So we'll we'll, get we'll there see if they just lose to Iowa this week. All right. <laughs> how, how do you rank USC versus Florida versus LSU as far as jobs go? What do you think here? Again, it kind of depends on what parameters you're putting around it. Mm-hmm. There, USC, I think, at our, is different than the other two for all the reasons you spent talking about that with Lincoln Riley. I think LSU is the slightly better version of Florida, but only slightly. Um, so if you're ranking them, maybe is like, you know, d- again, depends on what you desire out of it, right? So maybe LSU is one notch above Florida in the top seven or so jobs. But it it's minimal enough that if you liked Florida more, no one would be like, why are you taking Florida over LSU? Um, but I think USC is kind of a unique job in America because of all the things that you said. And so if you are looking at it through that prism, you might say it's maybe the best job in the country. You could make that argument. So I don't know that I would apply that to my own personal kind of metrics, but you could make that argument. I think that what Lincoln Riley just did was announce that USC was the best job in the country. That's what he did. I think if you asked us this question last mm-hmm. week, we might have answered it differently. I did answer it differently. And obviously we could have thought through the kind of the expected value and what happens and what goes out there. But he just told you that the best job is USC. That's why he did it in his own mind. He had a choice between LSU who you and I would argue to a blue in the face is one of the absolute best jobs because of the natural talent that exists there. Fact, Georgia and LSU, those two jobs built in talent, right? And he chose USC over LSU for one reason and one reason only softness of schedule. Anything else factors in it's 2% or 1% or something softness of schedule and this is going to be something that don't make no mistake about it the sec ad's and commissioners behind closed doors are going to be talking about what lincoln riley just did because he sent some shock waves through the industry because nobody likes to be in the toughest division or conference and lose out to a guy who's not i've been a baltimore orioles fan since i was born alan And the AL East is an absolute unfair juggernaut of baseball money spending. It's completely unfair. The fact the Rays succeed is beyond measure and belief, but it is brutal to be in that division every single year. It's basically entirely unfair. It's completely unfair. It's not fair. Other teams have a much easier path, and it's really frustrating. And you get no real reward. So that's not lost on the SEC. But I think that Lincoln Riley has sent the message. I had a choice. Between two king-making schools, and I'm choosing the one that's easier. Because it's a 12-team playoff. There's more room for expansion here. I think that's what was just said. So certainly he chose USC over Florida and LSU. Sure. He could have put his name for Florida. He He didn't. If he calls. Oh, yeah. We listen. I think he's he's the Florida coach today. Hands down. Good point. It's a good point over both of us. Yeah. Good point. And the only other categories you would put here maybe ohio state and georgia yeah georgia's right there but again the SEC, i think we're eliminating the sec team i think right i now. think georgia and lsu are basically almost mirror images I agree. of one another i agree so if you say no to lsu you would probably also say no to georgia yeah, you don't there's, want to be there's in the nothing, SEC. No. there's nothing to recommend georgia over lsu no and then ohio state is no. is interesting on its own merits but the big Ten is still better than the pac-12 mm-hmm. consistently every year Without fail. I mean, the Pac-12 made the playoff, what, six years ago? Was the last time they made the playoff? Six years ago? 
Yeah. That's crazy. That's bad for college football. It is, and it's bad for them, but it shows you that that's that's the problem we're saying here, right? Is that by him just going to USC in a conference that they cannot make the playoff, that's bad because it's anti-competitive. That's not what you want. That's not a good look, and that's what I'm going to try to keep harping on. It is the highest EV move. It's very smart by him, but don't for a second think that people are not noticing we have a slight problem here. We got a problem here because this guy's just chosen to take an alternative path to get himself in the playoff more frequently than these schools who are battling it out over here in a battle royale in the SEC. And he's basically like, I don't really want any piece of that. If I don't have to have it, I'm not going to have it. And that's very, very interesting. Hmm. So we'll see if it works out for him. If he never wins, I can assure you he will be dubbed as the guy who ran away from competition. And that will be viewed as a negative. Oh, yeah. If he wins, he's going to be the smartest guy in the room. Taking advantage of the system was in front of him. So we'll see which one holds true. All right. Let's tee up our slate with a little playoff discussion briefly here. Um, how do you want to talk about this? I think we just want, I'm going to read these team names to you because we're getting long in the tooth here with the podcast. A lot of good stuff to cover. We're right here at the end. So before we end, here are the realistic players, Alan. I'm going to read them to you. Now, there are, there are chaos scenarios here, to be fair, right? Like really, truly, a lot could happen because these conference championship games are not 20-point spreads. But probably number six or so is Notre Dame. Number five or so is Oklahoma State. Number four or so is Cincinnati. Number three or so, Alabama. Number two or so, Michigan. Number one, for sure, Georgia. Those are your six teams. Out of those six teams, assuming everybody wins this weekend, and I'm going to give you the only scenarios that have to happen, which is one of Georgia or Bama has to lose. All right, mm-hmm. We're going to start, start first with Georgia beating Alabama, the cleanest and easiest of all situations. Georgia beats Alabama. Everyone else wins. Who are the four that you would like to see in the playoff? That I would like to see? You would like to see. Not what the committee is going to do, what you would like to see, based upon what you think is the, the best, for whatever reasons you have. This is the Allen playoff committee. Who are the four? So I think Georgia, of course, Michigan, of course. Obvious. Um, and then I'm going to put Oklahoma in the, Oklahoma State in there. I think they've earned that. And then it comes down to Cincinnati or an 11-2 Alabama team. And this is not so 11 a, and one Notre Dame. No shot for you. No, no, I agree. No, no, yeah. No. Can't. I, I think you cannot in good conscience put them in over a 11 and two Bama team. If, okay, hold on. Georgia wins like 60 to nothing over Alabama. Yeah. Then I think they're out. Okay. So you're, you're assuming Bama plays a competitive game against Georgia. Right. Okay. And just the way this Crimson Tide team has been, they're very, very, very good, but they're not crazy, crazy good. Like if you had lost to AM on a weird game and then you play a close one to Georgia, man, I don't know what the Cincinnati I, I personally would like to see Cincinnati in there just for fun. And then look at that list. You've got Michigan, Cincinnati, and Oklahoma State all new. Georgia's only been in there one time. People have been calling for new blood. You got it there for sure. I think that's kind of fun. Now, but here's the problem. If you ask me who's going to win, Cincinnati or Alabama, I'm for sure picking Alabama. If I have to wager on that, I think about it for 1.5 seconds and I pick Alabama. Not to say that's a slam dunk, right? Because Cincinnati is very good and this is a vulnerable Alabama team, but that's the only thing you're considering. Okay. So you're for Georgia, Michigan, Oklahoma State, Cincinnati. And Cincinnati. Okay. I like that. 
that is also my four in that situation. That's the obvious easy situation. We're not going to cover the crazy ones, but I'm going to give you the other most likely one that throws a wrench. Alabama beats Georgia. Mm-hmm. Then what happens? I think Cincinnati gets left out. So you go Georgia, Bama, Michigan, Oklahoma State. Mm-hmm. Okay. They should. I mean, it it doesn't seem like you can, in good faith, take a 12-1 and Big 12 champion and not put them in over an undefeated Cincinnati Bearcats, who Cincinnati, the best team they've played, will have been... Notre Dame. Which it's is a nice. Good win. It's a great win. It's a great win. But Oklahoma State's got, you know... They'll have beaten Baylor twice. They'll have beaten Oklahoma. Which will be two top 25 teams, another top 25 team. They'll have beaten... Um, nope, they lost to Iowa State. So They did, which is, yeah. That's but what got I, I think it's... I think they would have to put them in. But this is great. So for all these years that I've talked about how you need to have at least eight teams in the playoff, this is another great example of why. Now, it could go to like everyone loses and makes it easy. But to me, I just don't like that we have to fight between Notre Dame, Oklahoma State. Now, Cincinnati beat Notre Dame, so there's less of a qualm there. But like those these teams, you tell me who you think is going to win between some of these teams here. I mean, if you start Notre Dame versus Michigan, coin flip. Seriously, coin flip, Oklahoma State. I mean, you could you could create a bunch of matchups where these are all within a five point spread. Cincinnati being the wild card team, you want to have in there because we're American, we love wild cards, but we don't get that. We get four, so we're going to see what happens here. Obviously, the best case scenario, I think, for all college football fans, and I hate to say this because I don't want Georgia to win a title. They've been you know our team from the beginning, so to speak. They're the team that really should win it. Is for Georgia to beat Alabama. It's the most fresh resulting playoff you can possibly have. I'm sick of Alabama. I'll be rooting for Georgia because of that. I would like to see that for my own rooting purposes. I just yeah, because Alabama's going to have... be in the playoff again. Yeah, but yeah. they are the if your if your ultimate goal is Georgia losing. Yes, that's the best scenario. Yeah, yeah. you need you know, as a Florida fan. Yeah, Bama's the that's the thing. What are we rooting for here? That's why it's tough. It's tough. There's a lot to go on. All right, let's get to the slate then. Okay, conference championship week. Let's start with the game. Two games on Friday. Western Kentucky favored by one against UTSA, who finally lost last got week. Crushed. Yeah. Undefeated. I know where they get smoked. And then now Western Kentucky is a favorite of four loss, I think, Western Kentucky team. I'm going to ride the momentum here. I'm going to take Western Kentucky. I have no idea. No, I don't either. But it just feels like if you get beat like a drum that badly, where's your head at? I don't I'll know. jump over to UTSA. Why okay. not? All right. I like that one point game there. All right. Utah favored by three. Against Oregon. So Utah just won the game previously. Not only won, they dismantled, yeah. they broke them. I'm taking a breaking part too. I'm taking Utah. I'll go with Utah there as well. Okay. To the aforementioned Big 12, Oklahoma State, favored by five versus Baylor. Now, here we go. That's what we're saying. Everyone's like kind of just projecting things. This is a For coin sure. flip game. Definitely. It was Baylor close was a last good time. good football team. It was close last time. It's a total coin flip here, Alan. And I love Mike Gundy. Five points, though, is too much for me here. I hope they win. I want them to win, but I'm going to take Baylor with the points here. I like the points Baylor's getting. All right, I'll go, I'll go with the pokes here. I, this is a total like gut thing. I, I mean, I almost went Baylor here because I, I agree with what you're saying there. <laughs> All right. We, hey, you got to have the MAC championship in here. Come on. Kent State, favorite by two and a half versus Northern Illinois. Man, the whole season's coming down to these. Northern here. Illinois has just. You know, the Flashes, right, versus the Huskies, I think it is, or the Salukis or whatever Salukis, they are. Salukis, yeah, I, so. I mean, you have to go with the Saluki versus the Flash. So that's that's me. I'll go Kent State. I'll lay the points. Utah State versus San Diego State. 
San Diego State favored by five and a half. This is an underrated good game here. Utah State, I like Utah State. They've done me right in the past. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with them here, taking the five and a half points. Same. I like yeah. getting the points here. All right. This our, is it. Our boy this Billy Naps. Um App State favored by three versus Louisiana, maybe baking in some of the distraction from having your coach get hired away. And this might make you feel like if you're a Florida fan, oh, am I excited that Billy Napier is here as an underdog to App State? Heck, yes, you are. App State's royalty in this conference. Mm-hmm. They're phenomenal. Louisiana was a nobody until he's made them into this. I just think App State is better than Louisiana this year. I've gotten to watch a decent amount of Louisiana and App State, surprisingly enough. And App State's a good football team. I, I think this is not going to end the way Billy Napier wants it. I certainly hope it does, but I'm going to take App State. I'll join you there. It's tough right now. Just split focus has got to hurt. That does affect you too, I agree. All right, number one, Georgia. We're going to order, by the way, of... When the kickoffs are happening. When the kickoffs so are you want to let your week. weekend out, we're just getting... Here you go. We're, in, we're in midday Saturday now, 4 p.m. Number one, Georgia, favored by six and a half versus Bama. How are you feeling about Georgia right now? I mean, I feel I feel great. Six and a half? Six and a half, Alan? Mm. First of all, it's crazy to see anybody favored against Alabama mm-hmm. at all. But six and a half feels nice. I mean, wh- how many points is Bama going to score? You just saw Auburn shut out. Granted, it was on the road. And granted, it's a different matchup, but you saw Auburn shut them out for almost the entire game. So are we saying Georgia can't score 17 against Alabama? They might not be able to, but I mean, 17-10 is a likely score. That's a, that's a win. That's a cover. So for that reason, I have to take Georgia. I'm going to go Bama. Ooh, this is pure you guts. You did it. This is a... You take an outright win, or are you taking points? I'm taking points, but okay, all right, fair enough. So you, you think George? But no, I think win. they could outright win this. game. Oh, they totally can. I didn't. I mean, know if that you were calling Auburn game there. gives me great pause. I was ready to pick something like this line, and man, you know, I just don't feel it with Georgia. They could prove me wrong. No, Georgia. Look, Stetson Bennett still being there. Yeah. It could really yeah. loom to to bite them, mm-hmm. and we would be chronicling it. All right, Cincinnati favored by ten and a half versus Houston. A very yeah, game, Houston, Houston ranked. Team. And again, you're noticing all that. Sometimes we do this. Some years we do this, Alan. The spreads are huge. The games are very compelling. Mm-hmm. I think Cincinnati has got their mind right. They are a buzzsaw right now. And I'm going to stick with them here. Even with 10.5, which is a lot. I just think they are absolutely dialed in. I'll go with you here on Cincinnati. If that number was any higher, I would pick Houston yeah. just to cover. I don't love it. Like I wouldn't bet this game in all actuality. No. Ten and a half is too much between two good teams, but I think Cincinnati's locked in. All right, Michigan favored by ten and a half versus Iowa. Can Iowa keep it close? Can they get some of their magic turnovers from the that's, end of the season? That's the thing is, can Iowa stop Michigan from running the football? That's all this comes down to. Michigan is not a competent. Mm-mm. Like their average, their passing can be okay, but I don't know the answer to that. I don't either. I mean, I think that th- I think theoretically the answer is yes, they could. And ten and a half feels like a lot. Is Michigan though going to let down, or are they going to shoot themselves off into the stratosphere? I'm going to have to go with history here and say that until Harbaugh proves that he's not letdown proof, oh, that it's a letdown. I'm going to go with Iowa. Doesn't mean they lose, but it means I'm putting them on on upset alert. So this is the interesting thing with this number is that. I think you're going to be very right or very wrong. Because if they cannot, I mean, Michigan could win this game by 30 if they unlock the key here versus Iowa and there's just no stopping them like it was against Ohio State. 
or this is a slugfest that goes in the fourth quarter and is a three-point game. I'm going to go Michigan, though. I think they do unlock it. There it is. All right, Pitt, favored by three against our Demon Deacons of Wake Forest. I mean, I'm taking Wake Forest. I'm uh-huh. riding this feel-good story all the way into the sunset here. I'm going to take Pitt. I think they're the better team. They are the better team, but I'm riding the magic. I, I Come love on. Come Demon on, Wake. All right, if you want a late-night treat. The Pac-12 after dark. Because yeah. of COVID, you get a bonus game. Just what you're waiting for, folks. USC versus Cal. Cal's favored by four. All right, here's my theory. Okay. This is why I really wanted to put this on here. Okay. So USC now is like, they've all of a sudden overnight become like a top program again. They were, I mean, think about USC. Just just put your mindset into USC for a second for the past mm-hmm. several years. You haven't even thought about USC because they're horrible, which by the way, tells you how important coaches are. Also, it's a great proof of the three-year test, Alan, because now think of USC as quickly as like two years from now. Probably you think they're going to be excellent. I think the USC players have been in a malaise. They don't know what's going on. Now they are like jacked up. They have a guy who's put so many players in the NFL. They're relevant. People are talking about them. They're going to have their best week of practice ever. And I think because of that, they still have talent on the roster. They're going to wind up. And they're getting four points. I'm taking them here. I'm taking USC. All right. You convinced me. Fight on. I'll join you. There it is. All right. Daytona Steve, who threatened to quit this year. Not quit. Stop this year. He's had such a bad year. And then he decided, you know what? Forget it. I'm going to have to go with an 1,100 to 1 odds Hail Mary parlay to rescue my season. Rescue it. 1,100 to 1. So if you have a couple dollars lying around, go ahead and put this. Put $1 on. Put this squarely on and see if Daytona Steve pays out after his miserable season. He's got Western Kentucky. I like that one over UTSA. He has Utah over Oregon. I like that one. Oklahoma State Baylor. You like that one. San Diego State, Utah State. Did you like that one? I'm Utah State. I can't remember. I went with Utah State. Okay, all right. He's got, are, he's got the Allen Parlay right here. He's got Louisiana upset money line. The outright win over App State. Ballsy. I like it. Cincy over Houston and Georgia over Bama. Wake Forest upset money line over Pitt. Michigan minus 10 and a half versus Iowa. And then USC, the upset money line versus Cal. So we're a mixed bag here. Of things I would have picked and you would have picked. He mixed us together. Hopefully he got the right thought. And then he swore off locks, Alan. He told us, <laughs> I'm not doing any more locks. I've been so horrible. But then he said, I saw that Georgia was only favored by six and a half. Back up the brinks. Georgia's the lock of the week, which pretty much means that Daytona Steve has just ensured that Alabama is probably going to beat Georgia because that's how bad his locks have been. So fade that one. Congrats. There you go. All right, other items, Alan. A quick b-ball update. Yeah, let's go. Did real you quick get a here. chance to see the end of that Ohio State game? I did. I loved it. I mean, they did not have their best game that night, and this team, I've been really impressed by their kind of grit and determination, which I know feels like cliches, but they battled, and then that was an awesome end of the game. The alley oop, the defensive stop, and then clutch shot by Appleby. That's a really good win. That was great, fun. Great win. Florida now ranked 14th. They're mm-hmm. destroying people. They have not played a top 20-ish team really yet, so we're not sure where we'll settle. We're 10th, though, on Ken Palm, which tells which you a I lot like about it. our efficiency. That's nice. Uh, so obviously, I think what's really fun is the talk we had with with our basketball insider, Justin Seitz. It was a really nice table discussion for the whole season of, of is this new era of basketball suitable to Mike White as a GM? And it's safe to say that this team by far plays the best brand of basketball. Mm-hmm. 
by far. Like and they play basketball the right way. And I have to think that's not because Mike White is teaching them that as much as he was able to GM, as we mentioned, the pieces, which is an important skill. But I will say offensively, we are we are more creative than we have been. Oh, it's way not better. like no, a master class, but, but it's way better it's than way it's better. been. Like it's like they actually play offensive basketball. I'm enjoying the heck out of the team. I, I want to say that right now. Them. And we'll, we'll follow the coaching arc. And one important thing is, and this is really important, if the system or dynamic you are in changes, you cannot apply the old test to it, like we mentioned. So for Mike White, I still have plenty of reservations. Can he like turn the corner all the way to an elite coach is the best we hope for, you know, 18th or 20th. But it's really great to see a very un-Mike White-like basketball team with character offense etc like if you closed your eyes and you looked at the preceding mike white teams and then this one they look nothing alike with how they play it's crazy and that's that's crazy it's crazy because you just don't see that it's remarkable and i'm loving it it's it's gonna be a fun team to watch i think all year long uh which is great so enjoy enjoy the hoops florida's got a big one i'm excited this week first oklahoma which should be really fun Mm -hmm. oklahoma's undefeated i've not played any really great competition yet but either way good chance for florida to see where they stand let's do it all right that's with that, let's end this one. I assume it's a long one here, James. Uh, really fun to talk about. Really fun moment in Florida football. You know, who knows what's going to happen in the future, but enjoy it right now. The sky is bright. The sun is shining. I'm excited. You're excited. We'll see what happens. And we'll we'll be back next week after the title games. We'll do a little capper on the season to kind of close things off and talk about what's going on in college football. And we'll see you next week.